0: If you had to send a message 10,000 years into the future, how do you do it? By then, the language you speak and the country you live in will no longer exist, and everything about the world will be different. In this conversation, I speak with Ola Wakanda, who's a senior lecturer at Lund University and an expert in ancient religions and extinct languages. We discuss the destruction of historic cities and cultures, deciphering of long-dead languages, and the role that religion has played in transmitting symbolism and imagery through time. We end with the question, how can we warn our descendants about where we've buried our nuclear waste? I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens Podcast. If you enjoy what I'm doing, please consider subscribing, liking, and sharing this content. And now, here's Oliver Cunder. I hope you enjoy
1: escaped sapiens
0: so when people talk about the problems with using nuclear power one of the pretty much the the main and only concern that people usually bring up is that you know if we're going to be doing this then in 10,000 years down the track, we will still have some radioactive material that we have to deal with. And so how do you store this material in a way that's safe for 10,000 years? So this is the main problem that people bring up, but there's sort of a related problem and one that people don't think about as much. And that is in 10,000 years, the languages that we have today may no longer exist. The national boundaries may have evaporated. The culture will be completely different. And so even if we can somehow safely store the nuclear material, how do we let people know, you know far in the future that that's what we've done? And and so that's ultimately what I want to get to today. But I want to start with your background because you've come at this question from a completely, what, what people might see as an unusual direction. And so I want to start very basically uh, just a question about your background. What's exegesis and what's philology?
1: Well, uh, two overlapping things there. Exegesis is... Well, to put it simply, the scholarly field of exegesis, Old Testament and New Testament exegesis, for example, are the scholarly fields that study ancient texts, but it's ancient religious texts, specifically uh, texts we know today as the Bible, using all available scholarly and scientific methods. Uh, it's, it's a scholarly field that was developed to a large extent studying biblical texts and... It has to do with what is often referred to as historical critical study of biblical texts, which doesn't—that's a, sometimes a, a misunderstood term. That doesn't mean critical in the sense of dislike. It means critical. <laughs> well, it can for some, obviously. I mean, but it, 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 that's not what the, the point of the term. The point of the term is that you study the biblical texts with historical, uh, historical and linguistic uh, methods, or any other. A scholarly or scientific method that might suit the text which you have before you uh, so that's basically what exegesis in in academia means it means the scholarly study of ancient religious texts and in, in, uh, particularly the bible even though the term can be applied to other texts as well uh, philology is a broader term philology well that's basically the term for linguistic study of set texts basic mostly ancient and at least pre-modern texts not necessarily but mostly so it's it's linguistics as applied to textual study as opposed to study of speech or, or or phonetics or whatever philology is specifically the study of language as represented in corpora of often ancient texts which means that exegesis in the scholarly sense often works in philology in my case it's very much uh, very much so
0: so so most of the researchers i know uh so physicists for example the, the best thing that they could find is some new fundamental law that they're, they're interested in yeah. um you know the very fundamental questions about how the universe and how the world works whereas from what i understand your research is more like detective work in a certain sense so w- yeah what's the analog then what's what's the bet you know if you had your dreams come true and, and you discovered <laughs> what what's the sort of thing that you would love to find out about the world uh in your research well
1: ah yeah nice i mean it could be a number of things i mean it could either be that they're uh, a new textual find a find uh including a new text that gr- that is fascinating in itself and, and gives context to text we know well but completely new context, uh, comparative context, for example. Another thing, it, you mentioned uh, fundamental laws of physics. I mean, the analogy there very much for someone who works, as I do a lot in historical linguistics, is actually coming up with a sound law. That is a law that shows a regular linguistic development uh, for a certain language uh, and, and, and people do this and they, they're named, you know, they're named out so-and-so's law, uh, Geir's law, philippi's law etc cetera, etc cetera. of course that's a if you if you get your name in a book with your law uh, with someone someone someone's law in it i mean it, it looks nice i have no pretensions of doing that <laughs> I, but 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 i mean it's laws do appear in what i do as well so does
0: that mean so by a law does that mean so, so one thing I'm a bit curious about, before the talk, you told me that y- you can speak or you know something like 15 or 20 extinct languages. Well, and, most, and, of
1: them, most of them are read, not spoken. But yeah, I've see, worked with many ancient languages.
0: That, that's the question that I had, which is that, so if you had some law, would that allow you to uncover what these languages sound like? Or um, you have no idea what they sound like at all?
1: I mean, well, that depends on the language. For some of them, for some of the ancient languages of, say, the ancient Near East, which is what I've mostly been working on, we know quite well in certain cases what they would have sounded like. And the way we do know that is through linguistic and phonological reconstruction, which uses sound laws. Sound lo- laws themselves are more like they're more, they're almost mathematical, you know. Sound X in an earlier language develops into sound Y in the later dialect, so and so. So they can always almost be formulated as, ma- as, mathema- as mathematical theorems, almost, you know. But uh, yes, I mean, a, a lot of what historical linguistics does, not the only thing, but a lot, a lot of what historical linguistics does has to do with looking at. W- what languages sounded like how they came to sound like that but also of course how that why their morphological systems that is their verbal systems and inflectional systems why that looks the way it does why why the vocabulary l- looks the way it does so which words are inherited which words were borrowed from some outside source and how which words were created I oh almost, i almost want to say from scratch but that's not really a good term because words are basically never created from scratch they're created based on earlier material of some sort. Mm-hmm. There are very rare uh, exceptions to this but but like words like quark and things which was basically <laughs> I, I mean that was taken from, from a James Joyce novel so it was basically created from scratch uh, but but mostly that doesn't happen but historical linguistics studies how you know how how sounds change and develop, how words change and develop, how morphology, that is inflections, uh, change and develop, and yeah, and this helps because it, it it's not just an abstract exercise. Because I'm working in exegesis, for me, this is a di- I apply this directly to the study of concrete texts. You know, uh, say a verb that was hmm. almost never used in classical Hebrew, but it is used in certain neighboring. Semitic languages, like Ugaritic, which is my speciality. specialty. If you look at how the relevant verb is used in that language, that can shed some light upon rare usages in in Hebrew, etc., etc. So it has direct uh, hermeneutical value as well. It's not just an, an abstract uh, intellectual exercise. That said, the intellectual exercise part of it is quite nice, but that's not the that's not the end all and be all of it, be all and end of it, and all of it.
0: It's um, it must be so hard to learn a language that's extinct. It, it, how do you do it? Because do you ever get the opportunity to practice with people or is it just really working with the text? What do, what do the conferences look like? Are you?
1: <laughs> I mean, I mean, again, I mean there are depending on, I mean, d- that all depends on what language we're talking about and languages that have a sort of very solid tradition to this day languages like latin and, uh, uh, and sanskrit for example i mean you do have people speaking those languages just just to do it you know uh, uh which i respect but for languages like ugaritic where i mean U- ugarit the, the the place where ugaritic was spoken was destroyed over three thousand years ago so uh, so there's no there's no speaker base <laughs> there uh, 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 nobody who's learned it as a traditional language either. Uh, which means that what you wor- what you have to work with is texts, mm-hmm. and s- so what you usually do. I mean, the traditional method for doing for learning this stuff is you 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 read a certain set set of texts, and you have a grammar, and you have uh, hopefully a dictionary. That's not always the case, but <laughs> hopefully you do have a dictionary, and, and then you work with texts, and you work with them very 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 minutely. That's another difference with how I mean when people learn modern languages what they Mm. the way to do that is usually you start by you learn very simple sort of set phraseology my name is so and so can i have a beer where is the village you know all all, all that sort of stuff my sweater is green you know all that stuff Mm. Uh, when you study ancient languages that's not what you do what you just take a after a I mean, you start, of course, hopefully with some sort of reader or other. If there is one, nowadays, there actually are readers for Ugaritic. There, there, there weren't for many years, but now there are uh, and you learn the basics of the grammar and you sort of, and then you take the leap into, well, classical text, really. I mean, it's it's as I often tell my students of, I mean, I teach classical Hebrew, and I often tell my students that what you're going to do here is that in a couple of months or a half a year, uh, you will be going from zero to studying the classical literature of this language. It's basically as though, you know, if you had no English whatsoever, in a couple of months, you'll start reading Shakespeare. That's what it's like. <laughs> That's what it's like. Uh, and this means that you study it slowly and laboriously and deliberately. You don't just read. Well, at one... I mean, when you get further, you can start just reading. You. This happens over... a you know uh, uh, uh after a couple of years you do start to get to r- really read but the first thing you start to do is analyze you read every single word and analyze every single verbal or, or noun form you can find to the minutest details and to the yeah. minutest level uh, and it has to be done like that um unless you want to go for a direct method and just speak the language to the students and 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 for a language like latin that can be done and has actually been done quite successfully you know teaching latin through latin that's i mean most people don't do it that way but some do and it and it actually does work but with ugaritic for example that would be completely impossible because there's the corpus of preserved material is i mean you can you can I don't have it with me right here in this room but the entirety of ugaritic and trans in transliteration fits into a book this size that's the whole of the ugaritic language what you see is what you get which means that if someone i i, I mean I, I i remember many many years ago i i was on a television interview in sweden and they asked they asked me to say and now the news, because the news were coming and, and I was I, I was stumped. I mean, what am I going to say? And then, of course, I had some esprit d'escalier walking out of there, what the ah, hadathati or something. But, you know, it's <laughs> it's not uh, so I sort of const- hadathatu, I sort of constructed it in my uh, in my mind, but it's not the it's not the normal hmm. vocabulary that you'll find hmm. in in a language like that, it, but you will find law uh, very very beautiful epic poetry about gods killing each other and battling it out and you know um so that's how you do it i mean it's it's it, if you if like but, take but a lang- w- yeah sorry
0: so, so, sorry would, would these techniques work for a, you know say for example you wanted to learn a living language i, I don't know which ones you don't know but perhaps
1: <laughs> perhaps mm. if
0: you wanted to learn mandarin or arabic or something and you applied these techniques how How quickly do you think you could absorb a, a new language?
1: I mean, that's that's not a good way to learn a modern language. Mm. it really isn't because the 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 goal is so different. I mean, mm. if there are I don't want to point any fingers, but there are countries in which English is taught in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people who study English like that, uh, they, they've often read some pretty highbrow literature but they can't speak <laughs> if they if their life depended on it because that's not what this sort of methodology is aimed at it's not aimed at speech it's aimed at rapidly very very rapidly acquiring uh sort of inroad into a very very complex uh, complex set of textual matter that's what it's aimed at and that's what the what it provides i mean uh i like biblical hebrew i mean yes you can uh, when you've done that for a couple of years you start being able to be relatively fluent in reading it you really do Mm -hmm. but but it's not the way to learn modern hebrew for example if you want a good cup of coffee in tel aviv that's not you know uh, that's not the way to but but it's just that's just a matter of what the stated goal is what the intentions of study Mm -hmm. are not to say that these two methods can't coexist, because I most certainly think they can. Uh, you can study, uh, say, both a classical, textually based version of a language and a spoken based version of a language at the same time. You can study both modern and, and classical Hebrew at the same time. Uh, it will be somewhat confusing, but it's possible to do. You can study both. Another good example is modern and classical Japanese uh which are rather different languages but but uh which are mostly approached in these two ways i mean modern japanese is mostly approached in the modern language uh pedagogy type of way of course whereas classical japanese is very much studied in the classical way that you analyze it step by step etc etc and and i think they both work quite well in tandem i i don't think there's really a really shouldn't be any opposition between them it's just a matter of why and for what purpose and in what time frame so i i, I mean i have seen people sometimes heatedly debating whether the old grammar translation method which is the traditional way of learning classical languages whether that should be sort of abolished because it's so different from how modern languages are t- I, no i think both work together i really do I, they serve somewhat different purposes but they're they both teach good stuff so yeah what's not to like
0: i, I guess the reason why i was curious is because I, I wanted to understand so for an expert like yourself what it's like actually to what extent you can actually make use of of uh, extinct languages so so i guess the key question is in in what way does it does knowing these various you know ugaritic for example how does it does it bring alive the Bible, for example, in a way that is sort of lost if you're just reading it in English? What's the... Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, In innumerable ways, because uh, especially mentioning Ugaritic, I mean, Ugaritic is, uh, for the ones in the audience who may not know, Ugaritic is a language that was spoken in Syria, on the coast of Syria during the Bronze Age. Uh, And it's a close-ish relative of Hebrew. It's not an ancestor of Hebrew, but it's a close. I I always liken it to the wizened old uncle of Hebrew. Uh, The analogy I like to use is that if Hebrew were one of the modern Scandinavian languages, like my own native language, Swedish, then Ugaritic would be Old Icelandic. So it's like the (laughs) old saga, mythical language of the Northwest Semitic uh, subfamily of languages. Uh, And if you have read and studied Ugaritic and the texts which are preserved in it you get a very different perspective on old testament right uh, hebrew bible text because they show the mythological uh, that is the eucharitic text they show the mythological and poetic world out of which these biblical writings grew they show a world of lightning hurling storm gods and Chaos serpents, who, whom these lightning hurling storm gods battle, which po- provides a wonderful sort of background for, say, texts from the Hebrew Bible, from Psalm 68, for example, which describes describes Yahweh as rochev ba'aravoth, uh, which is the exact equivalent of the term rakibu orpathiv in Ugaritic, the rider on the clouds, which is their quite nice title by the way the rider of the clouds which is there applied to Baal and you can see these almost verbatim and in sometimes actually verbatim correspondences which show that the writings of the Hebrew Bible special though they are I mean that doesn't mean they're the same that one one must not make that mistake but they grew out of a much bigger literary and linguistic universe which the Ugaritic writings amply display Uh, so yeah you get it's like it's as if you only have the biblical writings and if you only have, especially if you only have them in a modern language, you see like a tiny chink of a larger linguistic and literary world and you see only this little bit of it. And if you add stuff to it, your understanding will hence be enlarged in innumerable ways. So, yeah, it's a big, big difference. And just going to the Hebrew for for, for the Hebrew Bible, for the Old Testament, is a, is a huge difference uh that that's always one of the one of the most exhilarating things for me as a teacher of hebrew to see my students who have you know they're often biblically minded people who've read you know they've read the bibles but to see them suddenly sort of notice the multilayered expressions the sometimes ambiguities of the original text or texts is exhilarating for me as a teacher and that's very much why biblical exegesis exists as a subject
0: is there an you know often when you're learning mathematics or something or you you watch students learning ma- mathematics you'll see like this click in the head this aha moment is there some yeah sort of, is there some aha moment uh when you're reading the old testament for example in you know as a re- as a research problem? um is there some key aha moment that's sort of you notice in students in particular or is it just the general yeah. feel of the entire exercise no
1: no no it's very it's very specific and one of the most specific things actually has to do not so much with the biblical text but with the language as such biblical hebrew well not just biblical hebrew basically all semitic languages but since we're speaking about talking about biblical hebrew Biblical Hebrew is a language with a large verbal system. There are lots and lots and lots of verbal forms. There are even more in Arabic, but classical Arabic, but Biblical Hebrew has its fair share. And I mean, at first many students can be sort of exasperated by this, you know, they see these large tables uh, of verbal forms that they're expected to learn by heart, you know, they really are expected to learn them by heart. I, I joke, semi jokingly say that I, I I want to be able to wake them up at three in the morning and they're supposed to go, you know. Uh, I've actually never tried calling them up, calling anybody up in the middle of the night. I think I would get in trouble if I did. But anyway, the real aha moment is when we suddenly get to the point where the students see this not just as a as a you know a cluttered mess of verbal mm-hmm. forms but they suddenly see the system when they take a step back and see this wonderfully mathematical like system with root letters you know hebrew mm-hmm. and se- semitic words generally tend to be built on sort of skeletons of three uh three root letters three uh consonants and then you sort of manipulate those in an almost mathematical way to produce the actual words and when this system suddenly appears in all its glory it's a wonderful thing to watch it's a, it really is and uh and and it happens every time it happens every turn you know it, and it's um, again exhilarating
0: do you find that the majority of your students or the majority of people in the field are themselves religious or, you know, I, I want to get a feel for, so there's two things I want to get a feel for. First off is, you know, how it is that someone like yourself, for example, gets interested in ancient languages and uh, long dead religions and uh, the near East and uh, the bronze age collapse. And, you know, so, so on the one hand, I want to get an idea of, um, you know, how you get, Interested in in this sort of thing, whether it's through a religious route or, and the other th- question I have, which is sort of related, um, I'll have to remind you if I've asked two diff- difficult questions at the same time. But the the, the second thing is, I I want to know when you're doing, looking at these things academically, if there's a danger of uh, religious bias creeping in, or is this something that is difficult to deal with in the field, or h- how is that dealt with um, in the field? What does it look like?
1: Oh (laughs) Uh, yeah, Uh, let's start with the first part of the question because that's an easier thing to answer. Yes, I mean, uh, many of my students are, in fact, studying for various uh, positions in, say, the ministry in, say, the Church of Sweden. Because I'm I'm working I work in Sweden, and uh, that it is a fact that many people who are drawn to the study, especially of Hebrew, are drawn there either by sort of i mean I, either they have a jewish background or they have a uh you know a christian background in, in, and not just a christian background but one aimed at some form of work prospects uh, and and that is a fact and that's not the way i uh, i came into this i uh i you know, i had neither of those sort of inroads into the study of, uh, of exegesis and classical hebrew but many do many do and uh, and that is something that one has to i mean one has to deal with with that with a certain fingerspitzgefühl. gefühl you have to be uh, there's a delicacy to this that on the one hand you have to keep you you know you have to you have to have your cold historicist mind never shut down uh, but on the other hand, uh, you can't just bash people over the head and saying, you know, uh, you have to be respectful uh, and at the same time keep to a s- sort of strict scholarly methodology. And this can be done. And, uh, and I like to point out that it, the study of biblical exegesis is not at all the only field where this sort of problem comes up. I mean, imagine fields like uh, certain forms of social science uh, mm-hmm. economics for crying out loud <laughs> economics I mean that's a normative science if I ever heard one you know and there are others and and, and also other studies of religion I mean one example I often use is uh, say the study of take the study of ancient Norse religion mm-hmm. which may seem as a purely academic pursuit you're interested in how religion was thought of and practiced in the ancient uh in the ancient north of europe cool but that just putting it like that tends to if you do that you tend to forget the fact that there is today a number of not large but very active reconstructionist movements who practice modern foreign seether, modern uh asatru as it's sometimes called you know modern reconstructionist nordic religion and the people who do that are extremely interested in scholarship because they want often want to read up on what you know what's the latest word on Odin or or, or whatever mm-hmm. which means that people working on the Eddas or on ancient religion archaeology of religion in the Nordic countries or whatever they have an impact on believer mm-hmm. communities as well it's not just people working with a Bible and that that's something you know that's very important to remember that what scholars do often impacts modern people whether we want to or not and that doesn't have to be a bad thing I mean it's just a matter of knowing that you're you're not just caught in a bubble you should in some cases you should possibly probably work as though you were while you're doing scholarship because you have to be as unbiased as humanly possible but as soon as you put those ideas to writing in writing and, and publish them I mean that's I mean that's just illustrated by the story of the Bible itself I mean as soon as it was put into writing there uh the texts were reread and reinterpreted uh, uh, and used for purposes which the authors never would have intended them to be mm. and the same of course goes for modern scholarship as well uh, so, but the thing I'd like to say is that yeah I mean you have to separate I think what you believe as a scholar from if you have, let's say you have a personal relationship with a text you're studying, you have to try, at least try to sort of say that, yes, as a scholar, I can can argue this and this and that about the Mm -hmm. historical meaning of this text. And then as a believer, if one is such, I use this or interpret this as meaning such and such and such, and that these aren't the, it's different roles, you know, it has to be different roles. And and, and explaining that and making that stick is also one of the important parts of the exegetical training that we give to show that there, there are different ways of reading, say, the Bible, biblical texts, for different purposes. And the results you get out of using those different reading methodologies will be different and must mm. be allowed to be different. That was so, a very long-winded answer. I don't think if it made any sense, but yeah.
0: No, it made a lot of sense. I, I, it was actually quite perfect. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> but <laughs> no, the the so the okay. So I can understand. Um, so so the work is easy to motivate on the religious side, and then there's this yeah. the, the academic side. And so uh, one thing I want to know is, is, you know, you, you've also got to um, get grants and this sort of thing. So so when <laughs> you're selling the field um as an academic field um which it is um my my question is for someone who's not religious why why is it important to know about these long dead religions and and ancient languages and you know what what does what does it teach us about ourselves and our culture and the world that we live in like what what what's the um I mean, at the end of the, the discussion, hopefully, we'll get to nuclear semiotics and how to send messages into the future to, you know, ten thousand years to let people know that um, maybe some some location has dangerous radioactivity. But you know, just today, here, now, what, what does this um, tell us about ourselves?
1: Well, uh, there are many different questions, many different answers to that question, uh, which will depend a bit on the audience, of course, but to sell the field, as you so succinctly put it. I mean, it's studying ancient languages and ancient texts, and specifically, say, the biblical text, but not, not exclusively, grants us a window into the thought of ancient people. And a window into the thought of ancient people, well, it's thought that is, you know, it's alive in the sense that, say, take if we do take the biblical writings, they, I mean, there are a number of major religions one of them include including the number one religion in terms of people in the world i.e christianity that regard these texts as normative in some way or other i mean exactly what that means differs but you know some sort of normativity which means that studying these texts and what they are and why they look the way they do and how they've been used and when they were written and how their meanings have been reinterpreted over time becomes very important because it shows, you know, some it studies basically a big part of the history, the intellectual history of of humankind. Uh, And if we widen the scope beyond these texts to, you know, just ancient texts generally, well, uh, uh, the human species has had the enormous privilege to be able to write down its ideas and poetry and stories and quote-unquote science for about 5,000 years a little more than 5,000 years it's not more than that in the grand in the grand scheme of things 5,000 years is very little but during that time we've had this enormous privilege and this means that there is this huge amount of textual material giving us a direct view into the way that ancient people thought and lived and argued and loved and hated and, and made war and made peace and their ideas about gods and their ideas about love and their ideas about the future and their ideas about who they were and what it means to be a human being and i always love to say uh, that you know the this whole show starts becoming me quoting myself it's it's a little embarrassing but anyway uh, i always love to say that the world did not start in 1945 i mean Mm -hmm because that's all or, or 1991 for that matter, given recent developments in the world, you know that we have access to these huge swaths of human development and, and I don't mean development in the evolutionary sense, just development in the sense of changing history. We have this access through the texts and not using that not is, is mm-hmm. that means deliberately cutting ourselves off from our own hist- intellectual history, which is selling ourselves short a bit thing
0: <laughs> i want to come back at the end and ask you about uh perspectives uh and how you know what this tells us I- individually and, and and what our lives mean and and um what what the limited time uh, we have on this earth looks like in these like sort of large yeah. perspe- perspectives but i i want to s- skip away from that for the moment to look back at the languages again um, yeah. because i'm curious what it means to decipher an ancient language i, I mean in practice so I'm I'm imagining originally we didn't know anything about Ugarit, for example, and that, you know we, we found some text and then someone had to decipher it. So, yeah, what what are the principles of translation from that like early stage? What, what does it look like, and what does it mean once you you say the text is, is deciphered?
1: Oh, well, deciphering is one thing; translating is another. Uh, deciphering here would refer to when you know when Ugarit was discovered in in 1928 and then it was excavated uh, for many many years uh, and texts in many languages were discovered at the site because it was a multilingual society but focusing on Ugaritic itself which was the native language of the uh, of the city written on clay tablets but not with the international cuneiform cumbersome cuneiform script but in a local version of cuneiform which was alphabetic so they had an alphabet which is a very very sort of interesting mix they used the idea of the alphabet crossed with the idea of writing cuneiform on tablets so they took these two writing principles and, and crossed them which is fortuitous because that means that their writings have been preserved very well because cuneiform clay tablets are very easily preserved archaeologically but anyway when this language was entirely unknown i mean the first thing that had to be done and, and this one was was quite quick actually three mm-hmm. different scholars basically working not together but at the same time basically cracked this uh just in, in, uh, in during the course of a few years and the way they did that was that first they noted that this new script the ugaritic script had 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 around 30 letters and mm-hmm. that in itself told them that this might be a Semitic language mm-hmm. uh, because there are the Semitic languages spoken in the area with that about that amount of letters. Uh, Hebrew being one. Hebrew has a bit fewer, but it's in the same wheelhouse. Uh, and given the location in time and place, a Semitic language was a good bet. Semitic is the language family that includes Hebrew and Arabic and Amharic and Akkadian and Ar- Aramaic and so on. And then they, what they did was they noticed certain of the, so they guessed that this might be an alphabet as opposed to a syllabary, or something. and they were right. It is a consonantal alphabet, uh, and and one thing, for example, they noted that many, uh, many texts began with a certain letter that had three downwards wedges, and then they guessed, well, maybe this uh, these are letters, and maybe that's the wo- uh, the letter l. Because in many mm. northwest in northwest Semitic languages, l or la tend to, tends to mean two, mm. as in two so and so, and that turned out to be correct. So then they had one letter down, and then you go on from that. Uh, the 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 so, you know the great advantage in deciphering Ugaritic is that it's rather closely related to Hebrew and Aramaic, and mm-hmm. a, a, a bit further away uh, Arabic and Akkadian, even further away, but they had something to build on you know they could use what was known about semitic languages in the area to sort of reconstruct what in, what a language at that point might have looked like and then it was just a matter of you know finding which letter was which basically so that was a i mean that was a relatively easy one because there were uh, the comparanda both in ter- the both in terms of language and in terms of format say letter into correspondence was so uh, that was so abundant. It's much more difficult if you have a script, an unknown script, in a language that where you have no idea what the linguistic family would be. For example, and there are such examples. I mean, it's like one of the most famous examples is Linear A, uh, which is the script that preceded the famous, famous Linear B from Crete, that uh, which was the earliest uh, writing for 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 Greek. Uh, there's an earlier version called linear a uh, which still to this day is an unsolved riddle there are all sorts of all sorts of suggestions that it's a form of semitic or it's a form of luvian or it's this or it's that but we just don't know uh, because the there's no as there's not a certain way to just say that this is probably a so and so type language we just have you know the signs to go on, and it's. Uh, I very much doubt that that will never uh, that linear A will ever be solved conclusively. Is I don't know. Be-
0: is that because there's not? You know, I, I imagine that if you had an enough text that you could look at, you know, the frequency of words and, yeah. and oh, tricks yeah. like oh, this. Yeah. Is that is there? I guess I have two questions. Is, is is there not enough text? Like, how much text do you need? And and another example, of course, is the Rosetta Stone. So there you had yeah. You you know you've got these three three different languages, but obviously you don't have every word in the language written down. So so how no. do you how do you sort of bootstrap your way up from the two thousand words that are on the tablet to you know a full that that seems like
1: a full knowledge of the language. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I I mean it's a it's a piece by piece type proposition. Uh, If you do have a good bilingual, or a set of good bilinguals, I mean, the Rosetta Stone is a good example of that, where you have the same text in uh, two languages and three scripts, so you can sort of, you you can compare them. Uh, And then when you have a good-ish set of words down pat in a script or a language, uh, you can find those in other texts, uh, and sort of, uh, and and then you can use contextual various contextual clues. You know, given the genre of the text, this word should be meaning that. And then you test that on another text to see if that that meaning fits there. And you uh, and if it turns out the language does have known relatives, then you can use data from that. That's what's been done for Ugaritic, for example. You could once it was totally, totally crystal clear that yes, this is a Northwest Semitic language. Uh, you could start using etymologies from Hebrews, for example, to, to, to elucidate. That wasn't as easy for for Egyptian, but uh, but it's very much a matter of you know take for each and every word or root you actually get to know. You you, you check all your other texts. Does this word seem to appear in any other text? If it does, does the proposed meaning fit there? And then that may help you to guess what the next word means. And mm-hmm. that and and, it, and and when that snowball starts rolling. Uh, it's uh, uh, it gets better and better. The problem, of course, is that for some languages we have very little text or very stereotypical text. One one favourite example of mine there is is Etruscan. There are lots of texts in Etruscan that we have preserved, lots and lots. It's like nine or ten thousand texts, uh, inscriptions. But most of those are very, very, very short, and most of them are most of them are funerary, like so and so lies here. He lived for so he or she lived for so and so long, and served as this and that in this and that city. In many cases, not only not even that. In many cases, it's just a name, and that means that we have a very very good knowledge of funerary terminology in Etruscan. We know terms (laughs) for sarcophagi and uh, and funeral chambers and death and living for so and so many years, but other pieces of the. Uh, of the vocabulary are much much less known and that becomes a problem when one does find longer texts that are on completely different things and then we're not really helped by the fact that we know what the word for sarcophagus is because that's mm-hmm. not what the text speaks about uh, and that actually ties in with the nuclear semiotic thing because one of the problems that i've been sort of trying to sh- trying to hold up to the light is the fact that sh- uh, sort of underscore is the fact that we may in the future in the far future end up in a situation where yes people can read english a certain subset of english they may be able to read a specific type of english vocabulary let's say funerary texts or text describing i don't know household items or or whatever the case may be but they may be as in the etruscan case they may know that vocabulary super well but have Mm -hmm big, big, big problems reading about nuclear power, for example.
0: Hmm. So so when you, can, can you sort of watch an, the evolutionary march of language uh, as time goes on? And sort of a related question, do you think, for example, um, so now uh, the Chinese scripts, so when people write uh, out in Mandarin, for example, they use characters. Do you think in the near future, in the future, we're going to see Something more analogous to what we, you know, an, an alphabetic script where you sort of sound out the.
1: Oh, not really. And I, and I would like to object to the word evolutionary because this is, I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I, mean, I, I didn't because... mean
0: to put any value judgment.
1: No, uh, I no. Don't. I mean, okay. I mean, yeah, it, it is a fact that alphabets have mostly appeared in this way that you first have some sort of pictographic script that, and then. Uh, like, like in uh, in early cuneiform, for example, where you literally drew a picture of a head, and then read that as the word head, and then you start extrapolating the sound from that, and you start reading the entire syllable for the for the word head, and then in certain cases, like in the precursors of the alphabet, which probably was created on the uh, model of Egyptian hier- hieroglyphics, where you started, to, where they started to use just the simple consonant that it you know acrophonically that the first consonant mm-hmm. of the word was used like they, they uh, really really early versions of the alphabets you could do things like you could you can draw a picture of a house or a tent and use that for b because bait means bait or bait means house and you b- uh, whether or not I mean I don't think that's going to happen for Chinese mm-hmm. not at all because I mean that's why I don't really like the word evolutionary, because that implies some sort of teleology that it's moving in a certain direction. And I don't think it is. It's, uh, I mean, the both. I, I mean, take Japan for example. Already in the Middle Ages, they started adding to the characters that they borrowed from the Chinese. They added their own syllabaries, uh, which are now today known as hiragana and katakana, which spell every syllable of the language. And it would be perfectly possible for every Japanese text to be written only in these easy-to-use syllabaries. But they don't. They keep the kanji. They keep the Chinese characters because they think it's eminently practical. And it is when you know it. It's hard as nails when you're trying to learn it. But it's very. when you know it, it's eminently practical. Uh... And so, no, I honestly can't really see that. I know that there were ideas in China of using, at one point, an alphabetic script. I mean, that was in the days of Mao Zedong. They had mm-hmm. ideas that that might one day be a direction in which they wanted to move, but nothing really ever came of it, and I don't think it will, because... It, it, also, it's because of cultural heritage. I mean, if you stop learning all these characters, they would event they would effectively be shutting themselves off from their own cultural history. Mm-hmm and i i can't really see that happening and the same goes for japan i, I can't really see that happening and, I, I, and it's not a, it's not a thing that's really being debated actually it's it's like uh, it but it does mean that in japan it takes like 12 years of schooling to learn mm-hmm. to read and write well i mean it takes a long it takes a long time and this is for people who speak japanese as their first language it yeah. it's much harder when you have to learn the language as well Ask me, I know. I mean, I've, <laughs> I practice my kanji all the time and it's uh, it's a tall order. It really is.
0: It, it sounds like I'm uh, being flippant, but I'm really not. Um, so, you know, with this next point, which is that, um, you know, these days we use emojis. So, yeah. so we, we have these symbols yeah, sure. that are being added back into the English language, for instance. I, I don't know whether this is a, a counter example to the idea that, um there's sort of this monodirectional um flow of well
1: well, no i i wouldn't really count those either way because emojis interestingly enough a japanese word by the way uh are i mean they're not writing they're not really writing they're 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 sort of paralinguistic signals you know they they signal feelings or 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 they signal like associative patterns you know this makes me think of a camel bearing a heavy load or, or or whatever but they're not really ling- linguistic. They don't, they don't actually signal a spoken word. For example, mm-hmm. if anything, they're more they're more akin to in 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 cuneiform and in Egyptian hieroglyphics. By the way, there's a thing called um, determinatives, which is mm-hmm. a sign you put next to a word in order to show what sort of category of word they're, they're, uh, that is. Like in cuneiform, if you're writing about something that is n- stereotypically made of wood you often put a niche sign in front of it a niche is the is the sumerian word for for for, for wood uh but it's not really an emoji either so no i don't think re- that's really a super good analogy to be honest i mean the we do have some ideograms in modern writing like like the a- the ampersand the and sign that's a good mm-hmm. example of an idea and and and, and um uh the uh numeral figures like the figure figure eight for example Hmm. if you use that in writing it's basically an ideogram you don't write out the word eight you write an eight Hmm.
0: yeah okay i'd not really thought of that before that is actually a pretty good example (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah Yeah. but but uh and you i mean you Hmm. can argue that a language like english which has a very complex relationship to put it mildly between uh between Writing and speech, you know, the uh, because English spelling in many ways harkens back to a language, the language the way it was like a thousand years ago. It's an extremely conservative way of spelling, which means that some words almost are ideographic. I mean, you know, the, you know, the whole cough though problem. You know, it's an O-U-J-H, but it sounds completely different in cough and though, and, and mm-hmm. you know, and tough. Uh, and there are he- numbers, uh, many, many examples of that, you know, that English has frozen so many spellings mm-hmm. that they almost become ideographic. You have to know the word in order to know what the spelling means. Mm. But in uh, many other cases, you can guess, on the other hand.
0: So, so if we jump back into, so I, I don't want to get too far away from Ugarit because I have some questions there. I'm just sort of curious. So Ugarit was a city that was right beside uh, where modern Israel is, so in now in Syria well and not
1: right beside a bit to the north a bit to the a north bit, a bit to the i guess in but in, in, the, the, in sense. the in the same cultural sphere yeah
0: so so the thing i'm sort of curious about um is what sort of in what way do they mention each other so i know that in the bible they talk about baal who's who's this god yeah. in the ugarit is do they do the same in the other direction so in the ah. ugaritic text they talk about yahweh and and um no
1: interestingly they don't that and that's very there there may there has been a suggestion of one single place in the ugaritic in ugaritic literature that would mention yahweh but it's probably not it's probably not I don't believe. Well, some would disagree with me, but I, 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 I don't really buy that. So no. Uh, interestingly enough, so many of the divine names are similar. Like, like one of the most common Hebrew biblical, biblical Hebrew words for God is the word El, which basically means god but it's also a name of the ancient canaanite god el who was the big papa on the throne like the stereotypical old man god you know with a beard and everything that's el and he is all around at ugarit he's the big old semi otios father who sits on his throne and goes like yeah you younguns can keep this going and and the young ones have younguns have to vie for supremacy and one of these uns is baal who who uh, whereas Eil is more like yeah yeah <laughs> i'll i'll just sit here and basically mm. literally twiddle my thumbs it literally says that he twiddles his thumbs twirls his thumbs like this uh, and takes it easy basically and ail occurs in both at both Ugarit and in the Hebrew bible so and Baal occurs in Ugarit and the Hebrew bible and numerous mm. other characters do but not yahweh isn't that interesting isn't that interesting mm. And then of course the hebrew bible goes all the way after a while and starts saying that el and yahweh are the same character originally they weren't originally they weren't but they start uh, identifying them and that's really interesting because what the various authors of the hebrew bible do with the other gods some of them they sort of uh, they sort of assimilate like el they basically Mm -hmm. i mean they come right out and say that el and yahweh are the same uh the most classical example is genesis chapter 14 in which abraham meets a priest of ale and he says basically your god is my god i swear by yahweh who is ale the creator of heaven and earth so he does it's this very very deliberate ident- they let the character of abraham identify them very deliberately uh hmm. which is a pretty cool thing but on the other hand baal which in many ways was a more similar God to Yahweh than El was, it's like, nope, nope, no, 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 no Baal here, absolutely not. Oh, no, 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 Baal is evil. Oh, he's so evil. So they went to completely different directions there. With El, they said, yeah, El, Yahweh, same, 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 same. But with Baal, it's like, nope, bad. Which, of course, shows some sort of social reality in which Baal and uh, Yahweh competed for the same roles among certain people where uh, you can see this very clearly in in the book of Hosea uh, the prophetic book of Hosea which uh, early in the book does a pun uh, where Yahweh says to the people do not call me my Baal but my Ish and that's a pun in Hebrew because Baal in Hebrew it can mean the god Baal it can mean master or lord but it can also mean husband And, and Ish is the word meaning man so don't mm-hmm. call me my husband. Call me my man, and that means don't invoke me using the name Baal.
0: Yeah.
1: It's a pun on the dual, uh, on the triple meanings of the word Baal. Uh, don't call me. Don't call me your Baal. Call me your man. Don't call me your husband. Call me your man. Uh, so the uh, and that uh, that seems to show that at least at some periods, in some periods, there was a sort of you know some people wanted to invoke Baal and, and the prophet says, no, no, don't do that. That's not good. But with ale, it's okay. And that's really interesting, isn't it?
0: See, this is what I'm a bit curious about. The So we, when we think of uh, Judaism, we, we usually think of it as being a monotheistic religion. But, yeah. So the thing that I'm curious about is how did people 3,000 years ago or, or even further back how did they view gods from neighboring religions you know did they view them as real gods that we just don't worship or Mm. are they competing gods are they are they just fake things that that crazy group have come up with what what was what what was the idea
1: well i mean depends on when uh i mean when judaism was sort of codified as a you know the classical rabbinic standard judaism that was codified after the fall of the second temple uh, which is uh, in the common e- in the early uh, centuries of the common era uh, it became very much a monotheist religion you know there is only one god at least officially uh, but if you look in the texts of the hebrew bible which are in many cases much 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 older than that you can see that the prevailing attitude seems to be something like this that yes there are various divine beings uh, and we're only supposed to worship our God, which is Yahweh, whom we, ide- whom we identify with El. So we get him as part of the package. But Baal is out. Baal is bad. Uh, but there are texts in the Hebrew Bible that very clearly show that the authors regard the uh, regard other divine beings as real. There's there's one, for example, which says that has a uh, an Israelite character talked to worshippers of Chemosh who was the god of, for example, the Moabites, uh, and certain other people, saying, saying things like, well, when, when you're in trouble, Chemosh protects you. In the same way, Yahweh protects us. So the problem okay. there doesn't seem to be how many gods are there. That doesn't seem to be a problem that even comes up. The, the, the question is, which god is powerful and which god takes care of us? That seems to be the problem. The problem does not seem to be how many gods are there. That doesn't seem to be a question that was really raised to them. The the, the question is, which is the important god? Which is the god to whom we should direct our prayers and supplications and offerings? That is the problem. It's a very practical problem. This this problem of how many divine beings exist doesn't seem to be as much on the mind of the authors of the Hebrew Bible as it may be. On the minds of many today and that's an that's an interesting question there, there's a uh a em- very eminent Ugaritologist and stu- student uh scholar of the hebrew bible uh called mark smith and he writes somewhere i'm quoting from memory now he writes something like the that the hebrew bible was read for monotheism that is it was read as though it was monotheist hmm even though that's perhaps not really a good a description of what these early texts always are, they're more. They often. They often are. Um, uh, often preach monolatry. That is, you should only worship this god, but that's not the same as monotheism. Uh, uh, one of my favorite texts from the Hebrew Bible is Psalm twenty-nine, which is very Ugaritic-like. It has the big. St- st- again, the big. Lightning throwing storm god Yahweh is presented. You know he he throws his lightning bolts and the cedars crack and his voice his voice is, is thundering over the waters. It's it's very very high fantasy ish. I love it. I absolutely is one wonderful text. And what what you find there is these other characters called Beni Elohim, uh, which means God's sons and being a Ben of something son of this or this or that in classical hebrew is a way of saying uh, a representative of this or this that mm-hmm. category so there's some it means something like divine beings and these divine beings are exhorted to praise yahweh mm-hmm. so these other whatever they are mini gods or something like that are exhorted exhorted to praise yahweh and then the question becomes: How many gods are there? Well, that depends on what you mean by god. The author of that text would probably say there's one supreme god, and then there's other, these other guys, these Bene elohim, who are sort of there. Uh, and the classical image of that seems in, in in Hebrew Bible in the times when these texts were written seems to be something like this: that there was a bureaucracy, there was the king, the the main metaphor for, for Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible is not father, it's king. It's like mm. he's a king. And what does a king do? He sits on his throne, in his throne room, and around him is his entourage of ministers and functionaries and petty clerks and whatever, clerks and whatever. And these are the smaller gods who are like his retinue even. And, mm. But he is the boss, he's the undoubted. he's the boss. But that doesn't mean the other guys don't exist. They're there. Perhaps they aren't as powerful. Perhaps they aren't as important. But they're not non-existent. Uh, and it's very nice to see. Uh, very uh, sort of nice to see how then later texts that did grow more monotheist tended to reinterpret these smaller guys as angels. If you look in the Septuagint, the uh, ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. In many cases, they've uh, they they, they uh, where it says bene elohim," that is divine beings in the Hebrew text, uh, they uh, they translate it as "angeloi," angels. Conundrum solved, <laughs> at least temporarily, uh, and and there are many examples of this. I mean, it it all comes down to what you mean by God. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by God? Do you mean any supernatural being? Do you only mean the highest supernatural being how many highest beings can there be just one so,
0: so the other gods some, somehow like absorbed and i guess there's the devil as well that we talk about in christianity yeah and, and yeah modern- i mean the
1: the, dev- the devil is a later development you in the hebrew bible the devil is very scarce indeed uh you do find hasatan in some Bibli- uh, hebrew bo- books of the hebrew bible but he's he's very rare on the ground so to speak he appears in uh for example in the in, in the prologue of the book of job and interestingly enough there he doesn't appear to be evil he's just like some sort of court functionary the opposer the uh, uh, the accuser uh, and, and he makes a bet with yahweh you know that i've 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 been walking around on the earth taking a look around and i found this guy called job and he's a super pious guy and i want to check is he really that pious i want to i want to make a bet with you can i crack this can i crack him uh, and, Yah- and yahweh says okay you're on <laughs> you're on uh, and they make this sort of bet and uh, and yahweh gives the satan the Hasatan. satan he, he gives him a free reign to subject this poor job guy to all sorts of stuff and job more or less cracks and finally says no this world is in the rule in, in the hands of a criminal a rasha a cri- he, he openly accuses yahweh of being a criminal because all these bad things are happening to him. And then finally, in chapters 38 and following, Yahweh appears in a storm wind. of course, in a stormwind, where else, and gives him a piece of his mind and, and basically says that, if I weren't here, it would be infinitely worse. That's. It's also fun. His argument isn't, I am the absolute being. No, his argument is, if I weren't here, the world would be even more chaotic and poor. So, so there the Satan the Satan does exist but he's not Satan in the Christian sense he's more like a court functionary again it's this court scene type thing going on. So how
0: did people then uh, you know if you go back to you know 3000 years when sort of Ugarit was destroyed yeah how did people view the, the evil you know the, the problem of evil let's say uh I, I guess it was easy, easier in religion where you have, uh, you know, a full pantheon because you can say, you know, good things are due to this part of the pantheon, and this, mm. and there's evil. It sits over here. But when you when you push in the uh, monotheistic direction, it's it's harder, right? But unless yeah. you have like a devil figure, or
1: yeah, uh, I mean, that's a very very complex question because I mean, of course, people did uh, think about this quite a lot, and there are texts from Mesopotamia, for example, who are in a way quite similar to Job, taking up this sort of, why does my God abandon me? Why am I abandoned to all this evil in my life? This is a sort of recurring thing. Uh, at Ugarit, what they did very much was they had, you know, certain gods that were powers of chaos, and spe- specifically there were two. Uh, there was Mort, who was the god of death, who has a big, big, big mouth and eats everything. That's a very illustrative image. And where, and and uh, the summer drought is due to his power because he kills everything. Uh, and there's Yam, who uh, Yam means sea, and the big chaotic sea that you can get, you can drown in. So, those are sort of the chaotic powers that, that Baal has to, he has to literally fight them to pacify them. And this appears in the Hebrew Bible as well. You can find numerous texts in which Yahweh has to fight either the sea or a big sea dragon and pacify it. This, uh, this recurs a number of times, Psalm 89 has it, Psalm 74 has it, Job has it, uh, that this idea that there was a big sea monster whom Yahweh had to literally crush, crush his heads on the waters, as uh, as one of the Psalms puts it, uh, in order to make the world livable. That otherwise the world would just be filled with big dangerous sea dragons that would eat us up. Uh, So this was very much uh, a living conception uh, uh, to the writers of the Hebrew Bible that the world is a very chaotic place. And what what God does, what Yahweh does, is make it livable. And that's Mm -hmm. basically what he says in in, in the book of Job. Could you pull up the Leviathan with a fishhook? And the intended answer, of course, is no. No human being could do that. We need a God so that the Leviathan doesn't come to eat us up. And it's not it's not the devil in the moralistic sense that Christianity said that later made it into, but it's the sense of great chaos and evil being present as a natural part of the world, and we need we need a, a warden, we need someone who can go out and be our champion, and that someone in the Hebrew Bible is Yahweh, uh, and it's mm. really interesting. You can see a sort of development if you look at Psalm one hundred and four. This is developed, and there. Leviathan is just a plaything. The Leviathan is this big dragon. It says, "Leviathan, whom you created to play with, as though he was some sort of rubber duck." And then, even later in the in, in the Talmud, it says that God spends like a certain like a couple of hours or an hour every day playing with a Leviathan, as though he were a rubber duck. So you can see this sort of hmm. devaluing of this power. In the earliest text, he's a, he's a literal monster whom God, that is Yahweh, has to battle it out with. And then he becomes a creation of Yahweh, whom Yahweh has created to play with. And in the end, he becomes almost pathetic. But yeah, this idea that chaos is a constant threat, that's something that's very, very real to the authors of the Hebrew Mm -hmm. Bible. Uh, There's a uh, professor at Lund University, uh, now retired, Friedrich Lindström, who wrote about uh, a, a book called Suffering and Sin, on how this is reflected in the complained psalms of the Hebrew Bible. That is the psalms in which an individual complains about suffering. And what he found there is that these psalms, what they do is they don't say, God, you have subjected us to this terrible suffering. What they say is, oh God, you're gone. God mm-hmm. has left the bil- Yahweh has Yahweh done left the building. And we're left with these chaos powers. Death is eating me up. And unless Yahweh comes back, we're without any. Uh, we, we don't have any recourse. So so there there seems to have been this great fear of Yahweh walking out on us. We have to get him back.
0: It's it's a very different picture to sort of the Genesis God that created the world, right? It, it seems like yeah. the world's there. There's chaos, and he's yeah. the the custodian of something like this. But um, when if if you go back to early Judaism, did people? how did people see these magical stories? Like, did people really believe that, um, Noah had his ark and, and God flooded the world and, and did people oh, yeah. really oh, like, yeah, how I was it say. real to them or was it a cultural thing or what was it?
1: I mean, I, I would, I mean, believe is an anachronistic word that, uh, I mean, there's an old saying that if you'd asked an Athenian in, say, the 5th century BCE, do you believe in Athena, they wouldn't even have understood the question. It's like, do you believe in the sun? It's, it's a pointless question. Belief as a construct is very much a uh, very much a function of Lutheranism, or, or at least Protestantism, this idea that belief is the central part of religion. Uh, for lots of religious history, and in many parts of the world still, belief is not the be all and end all of religion but that said yes i I would i would say that many people believe this to be true and and, and i mean today many do uh, you can see this like there are from babylonia there are uh jewish babylonia there are lots of uh, a great corpus of incantation bowls it's like bowls with spells written on the inside often uh, often curses on you know <laughs> This, may this or that person not hurt me with his or her evil stratagems and they say things that like, may the spell that bound the leviathan come down upon him and i mean that shows that this idea of the great serpent leviathan was very much alive it wasn't just mm-hmm. a literary thing you know it's it's a dangerous big serpent you know that god had pacified and maybe we can use that same power against our evil neighbor who tries to steal our stuff or whatever the case may be so yeah if, i mean if, this is
0: yeah oh sorry uh, sorry for interrupting you there at the end the one one sort of interesting question i have is that um you know so so you mentioned that um uh jewish people saw baal as sort of this evil god that you're not interested in but i know that you study you look at poetic motifs that go from, yeah. you know, the um, Ugarit texts and that you can sort of find also in yes. the the Bible. And, and the question, yes. I, I, I sort of have two questions, uh, sort of a psychology one, which is, you know, if, if people, if, if Jewish people really saw these texts as being evil and sort of, you know, these are rival gods that we're not interested in, why would they adopt texts from these people? And yeah, no, 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 and and this. I guess the second question is. So, sorry, the second question is sort of a little bit related, which is, how do you know, how do you know that these texts are the same? Like, what are the cues? Like, how is it? Is it that they use words that are not commonly used, or like what? How do you yes. how do you make the links? Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, the, two things there. The, the first thing is well, first thing. Uh, in, in, in the periods where in which the Hebrew Bible, the earlier texts of the Hebrew Bible were written, Ju- they're, they're not Jewish in the sense that we used uh, the term Israelite would be better. In the, in the later texts, Jewish does work because then that's in the you know the period of Second Temple Judaism. But for the earliest texts, uh, I would say Israelite because mm-hmm. you know we're, we're at that period of time. But anyway, uh, why they would use say epithets that are were earlier uh, connected with Baal for example well uh one this is probably not a matter of them using Ugaritic texts ugarit was destroyed in shortly after 1200 BCE perhaps around 1180 or 1170 by the so-called sea peoples which is another difficult quantity but that's another that's another uh, another question and that means that It's very, very unlikely that any authors represented in the Hebrew Bible ever, ever read a Ugaritic text. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... I'm not going to say impossible, but extremely unlikely. There's no reason at all to presuppose that ever happened. They never read the Baal cycle, which is the major mythological text from Ugarit about the god Baal. Uh, What they would have had, though, is what I like to refer to as a bardic consciousness. That is, they would have phraseology that sort of was floating around among the quote in the quote-unquote campfires of the day it doesn't need to have to, doesn't have to have been campfires but you get my point you know uh, literary tropes and motifs that in which stories were told and those would not necessarily have been stamped Baal, you know some might have been but not necessarily and at the point where Baal became thought of as such an evil guy uh this can these connections might have been entirely forgotten These mm-hmm. may like, like uh so so i don't think that would have even been a pro that problem would probably even have what wouldn't even have registered because mm-hmm. people wouldn't have thought oh the the rider of the clouds is baal they wouldn't have thought that they would have thought the rider of the clouds is yahweh mm-hmm. it's just that you know the terminology is the same that is used to des- was used to describe baal at ugarit but they wouldn't have thought uh, that's Baal and Ugarit. They'd have thought that's our storm god. And who's our storm god? Well, it's good old yod here good old Yahweh himself, you know. That, so, so that would probably not have been a problem. The problem would perhaps have been in the cases where other where worshippers of Baal would have said, no, our god is the real rider of the clouds. Then there might have been a sort of mm. <laughs> some bit of electrical <laughs> friction going on, you know. But then the problem would have been who's the real rider of the clouds, not which terms are appropriate to use. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, uh, the second thing is, how do does one uh, recognize uh, common motifs and patterns? And as you so rightly say, my scholarship is very much, not exclusively, but to a very large extent, focused on, on, on inherited poetic motifs that are in com- found in common at Ugarit and in the Hebrew Bible, and I do say inherited now in the linguistic sense. I have to make that caveat that inherited means here not by blood. There's no mm-hmm. some sort of n- no sort of genetic mysticism going on. Nothing like that. It, 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 it's a matter of inheriting in the sense of as you inherit a language, mm-hmm. and languages change using sound laws, etc. You know. Uh, the re- the way you discover those is see when you see very similar phraseology, very similar mythological patterns. Ideally, using similar etymological material, that is, similar words. And it's even it's even better in cases, as you mentioned, where these words are used very very rarely in the target language, uh, so to speak. Uh, the best example is the one having to do with the battle against the leviathan there you can find some extremely specific terminology that's basically only used there in the hebrew bible it's like occurring twice in the in the entirety of the hebrew bible and and all the specific terminology for the leviathan being uh, writhing and fleeting which occurs uh, exactly verbatim at ugarit describing that very thing and there you have it's like that's a clincher right there in many cases it's not i mean that's one of the it, that's one of the nicest cases where, where it's a specific, exact verbatim formula. That sort of can't. It's impossible that it would have been a, would have appeared by chance. It mm. must have been a sort of mutual poetic inheritance. In some cases, it's not as clear. Some cases, it's more nebulous. You know, you find one word that's been used in a similar context but put in a different uh, larger context. Well, actually, the Leviathan thing is like that. The words are the same, but the context is totally different. In the Baal cycle, when they use this terminology of the Leviathan, or Litanu, as it's called in, in Ugaritic, the, the, the writhing serpent, the fleeting serpent, this exact terminology, it's, uh, it's the god of death accusing Baal of having done this. You've slayed this demon, this, or this terrible serpent. In the Hebrew Bible, where this occurs, in Isaiah twenty-seven verse one, it's a it, it's an eschatological prophecy about what Yahweh will do at the end of days. Then he will crush the Leviathan, the 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 writhing serpent, the the, the fleeing serpent. So the context of it is completely different, and 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 that uh, ties that back to what I said earlier that that something is similar and has uh, you know shared inheritance doesn't mean it's the same. I mean that's what you can that's the problem. We're, on the internet there are all of these sorts of skeptic websites where you know they go through oh the the bible is a hoax because this is the same as that and this is the same as that so all the bible is just a hoax well no that that doesn't follow at all one the examples they use are often erroneous that's the first problem the second one is well no the only thing that means is that literature doesn't appear out of a vacuum mm. No, no literature does ever <laughs> how could it i mean every li- piece of literature that's written harkens back to something that the author or authors knew
0: but i guess maybe means. the point they're making there is that the the book is supposed to be infallible and it's you know th- maybe the, yeah. maybe the the very point they're trying to make is that it's not coming from human you know that it shouldn't be coming from humans if it's yeah uh, do you yeah. see what i'm saying
1: yeah, yeah, I'm seeing what you're saying. But again, uh, not, I don't want to make a theological statement on infallibility. <laughs> I certainly don't. But, <laughs> but anyway, even that wouldn't. I mean, uh, it, uh, uh, let's say a person who does believe in the infallibility of the Bible. I don't. But say a person who does could just answer, well, God chose cultural artifacts to make his point. Why wouldn't he? I mean it's it's a complete non sequitur to say that just because something is part of a bigger cultural whole therefore it is devoid of value. I mean it's, mm. it it makes absolutely no sense and it, it it's it's pre- ha- making that argument is predicated on arguing against a very very specific literalist fundamentalist mm. uh view of mainly protestant christianity which isn't even representative of protestant christianity generally so it's sort of of a straw man uh, and i want to make that absolutely clear that the stuff i'm doing yes it does show that the hebrew bible is not as unique as you thought it was but maybe it was i I mean it wasn't unique for the re for the reason some people think that it's absolutely not similar to anything else. Oh, yes, it is. But it is unique in the sense that it uses these inherited poetic techniques and what have you to make very specific points that the mm-hmm. Ugaritians did not and could not have made. I mean, mm-hmm. like, like the history of the Israelite people with the the exile in Babylon. The Ugaritians were never in exile in Babylon. They they didn't have that trauma. They uh, mm-hmm. but uh, but the writers of the Hebrew Bible most certainly did. Uh, and it shines through, perhaps not on every page, but in very, very many pages, this national trauma of the exile in, in Babylon, where uh, Israelite statehood or Judahite statehood, I should say, was destroyed and, uh, and had they had to live under the rule of the Babylonians. That, that trauma is, is, is very specific to the Hebrew Bible and is very unique, in fact. So similar and unique are not mutually exclusive to be brutally honest. So this
0: this idea of national trauma is something I want to sort of latch onto here because you know in in the Old Testament um there's like prophecy about the end of days and all this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but you know Judaism is still around, or, or sort of the descendants yeah. of uh, the Israelites are around. Whereas Ugarit yeah. was destroyed, and so yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I want to, I'm going to sort of, I'm trying to lead into what it, what it looks like yeah. in text to watch a civilization yeah. crumble. But before yeah. that, I, I just wanted to um, just because people won't be familiar with Ugarit at all, and so you know sure. what actually happened. Uh, mm. You know who are the sea people, <laughs> and, and what happened to Ugarit? Uh,
1: yeah. Um, uh, well. That's a sticky wicket, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, well, around, tw- around or shortly after 1200 BCE, there was a series of cataclysmic upheavals uh, all around the ancient Medi- uh, near, uh, uh, the eastern Mediterranean. And there seem to have been a number of different reasons for this. Uh, one was climate, some sort of climactic change. There, there, were, there were a number of bad droughts. I, interestingly enough, bad droughts, given that one of the main dangers described in the Baal cycle is drought, which is incur- caused by the God of Death, who swallows Baal whole, so Baal cannot send his rain. So then it, all, all the land just crumbles and dies because of this massive drought. The sun is burning and everything. So there was massive drought in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, uh, and also... There were attacks by these people known as the Sea Peoples, who are Hmm. some of the greatest sort of known unknowns of ancient history. Uh, They were apparently conglomerates of different peoples, seaborne peoples, who attacked various civilizations across the coast they attacked egyptians up mm-hmm. in the nile delta that's where they had the biggest description of them because Rameses the battled them and he he enumerates numerous of these the term sea people comes from uh, Rameses the third's description of his battles against these guys who, who who came and raided uh but they attacked many different cultures uh and their attacks seem to have been ongoing for quite some time and they it, it, and in combination with the problems in agriculture, with the climate and mm-hmm. a downturn of econo- uh, the economic sort of distributions seems to have led to a general downturn in all these uh, major cultures of the uh, of the Eastern Mediterranean uh, around or before 1200 or and a little after BCE. And that led to the destruction of the Hittite Empire that led to the destruction or, and abandonment of Ugarit. There seems to have been some sort of mass exodus uh, from Ugarit and it led to a downturn at least in Egypt. Uh, and the problem is that these sea peoples, again we have lists of peoples that were part of them, but we have nothing of their own words. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the sea peoples uh, was uh, was probably uh, the guys who later ended ended up as the Philistians, the Philistine, uh, Philistians. Uh, who lived on the coast of what is today Israel uh, and are enemies, uh, sometimes enemies, sometimes uh, allies of the Israelites in the Hebrew Bible, but mostly enemies. And they were probably one of these sea peoples who settled on the coast of, uh, of Palestine uh, 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 after having raided for a bit. Uh, so they were probably one of them. They appear in this list but though they're only one of the ones uh, one of the guys who appear in the and some of them probably ended up in sicily uh and there are others and uh, so they were apparently the great military menace of the age and they led and they or at least they contributed to this mass cultural collapse uh, around the eastern mediterranean at that time and yeah it wasn't nice to be alive
0: why is it that so they were attacking Egypt and they were attacking and they destroyed Ugarit, yeah, uh, presumably. Where, yeah. Whereas you know the Israelites are sort of in between those two. <laughs> you know why why yeah, were they untouched?
1: Yeah. I mean we don't know that they were, but the Israelites by then uh, by then the Israelites were an unknown quantity. Uh, they, they they there was no Israelite state at that point, mm. uh, and so they. they they would not have been one of the major targets because there there, there was no uh, there was no Israelite statehood at that point mm-hmm. at all. So, or if it was, it was. I mean, it wasn't a statehood. It was possibly some sort of vague tribal confederation. Mm-hmm. But that's extremely debated, and I don't want to make a firm statement. But it wasn't anyway. It wasn't a state. Uh, there there actually is uh, a letter. A couple of letters, but especially one from the uh, last days of Ugarit, from uh, the ruler there, writing and sort of begging for help that they're they're attacking, uh, and uh, my troops are dispersed. Some of them are up north, and some of them are off, and I, we can't defend ourselves. Send help! Send help! You know, so we get a direct view of the great feeling of dread that they they they, they could see that things were going south. <laughs> mm-hmm. So <laughs> or, they knew. Or, or, so- so yeah, they knew they this knew. was
0: happening, and they because so, yeah. this is directly what I'm interested in. What does the collapse of a civilization look like in text?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it looks like help, help, send ships. That's what it looks like. <laughs> yeah. Help, come help, send send us troops, send ships. That's what it looks like, uh, and it's palpable. You know the sense of dread, and and it's a bit, you know, you it's not a fun experience reading it you know that you can feel mm-hmm. the, the the dread that even the upper classes of ugarit felt that, mm-hmm. so, that, that, that they, they they knew in their bones that this was their last stand you know that this and indeed it was they, they
0: so what did they, they do then was, was it um did did they resort to praying to gods or did they
1: well they would yeah. have they would have uh we don't know exactly but there's there's actually one there is a text it's interesting. Uh the Ugaritic literature that we U- Ugaritic religious literature there's lots of, you know, economic texts and stuff, but the Ugaritic religious literature that we have possessed today basically falls in two categories. One, the epics and myths, which is most of what I work on, you know, the stories of Baal and his and his friends and enemies and you know uh, and human story, stories about human characters as well, uh in poetry. And uh, ritual prescriptions, you know, offer so-and-so many sheep to God so-and-so. We have lots of that, you know, long lists of sacrifices to be carried out. What we don't have a lot of from Ugarit is uh, hymns and psalms. We have lots Mm -hmm. of that in the Hebrew Bible. We have an entire book of them in the Hebrew Bible. Not as much in Ugarit. We, uh, We have quite a bit from Mesopotamia as well, you know, hymns to Ishtar and hymns to Marduk. We don't have a lot of that from Ugarit what we but but among the few actual hymns and hymns and prayers that we do have from Ugarit that's not just sacrifices uh is a prayer uh, or a spell if you want to put it like that directed to Baal uh, uh which says recite this when you want to get Baal's protection against an attacker who attacks your walls your city walls and you I mean it's we don't know for a fact but it's not it's not too far-fetched to guess that this might have been a text they could have used mm. when the sea peoples were coming
0: huh so so do we just have those one or two letters and the few that one or two psalm-like texts or how, how big how, how much is there talking about the downfall
1: i mean that's mostly the letters that's mostly the letters actually and, and then there's the uh, you know the uh, the archaeology you can see you know uh, see abandonment you can see also you can see the climactic stuff and you know but but we don't have uh, as it in terms of you know eyewitness accounts it's mostly those letters which are interesting enough i can tell you and and i mean that must have been especially hard because ugarit what you know it was one city and its surrounding countryside that was this micro kingdom that was, you know, it was in vassaldom to the greater powers of the age. Uh, but, you know, they had the king, etc. And it was apparent, it was, a, I actually put it in one text. I just, uh, I'm about to publish uh, a, a review. Actually, I put it as like this, that Ugarit was a small kingdom with a big ego. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, uh, they wanted to be one of the big, big guys, but they really weren't. Uh, and uh, They were vassals to the to the Hittites uh, uh, and so on. And but, you know, they invented their own script for crying out loud to, you know, to show that there's, uh, show national pride, probably. There's there, uh, a scholar called Philip Boyes has just written a, uh, written a book about this, uh, you know, why the yoguritic script appeared. Why? And here, yeah, he makes this point that they somehow made a nativist statement, you know, mm-hmm. that, look at us. Uh, and given that they apparently did have this rather high view of themselves, you know, <laughs> small small kingdom, big ego. Uh, it must have been especially hard to see that yeah we're out of troops mm. they're coming and we're out of troops that can't have felt very good, very good can it nope mm.
0: well, the, the reason why I was curious whether there was more uh, in the way of text because I'm wondering if there's any uh, probably there's not it's probably a bit too much of a stretch to ask but are there any lessons that we can take away for our own civilization
1: oh, <laughs> oh dear yeah i mean I, I i'm sure there are a in the sense that destruction can come very suddenly mm-hmm. i mean one of the that that, that uh, that's a lesson for from the whole bronze age collapse actually that you had this golden age uh, around the eastern mediterranean and all uh, and uh, you know across mesopotamia you know a golden age of high culture of scholarship of of uh, 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 of trade you know it, it it was the thing you know and then it could all just within the scope of 100 years, less than that, in some cases, you could just, the whole thing just imploded on itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's, I mean, it's very easy to think that you live in eternity, isn't it? You know, that your civilization will persist mm-hmm. forever. It's very easy to imagine that. And you can see that today. I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, yes, people get afraid that COVID will destroy all of modern civilization, but do they really believe that? do they really believe that i don't know maybe some do but 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 still you know the, the fact remains that even very very complex cultures can collapse very very quickly it, it, when the uh, when the when the snowball starts rolling when, when rolling down the hill it can it can go take very very little time for things to get really really ugly uh, and and that of course is a is a uh, is a lesson learned, and, and and another one. Like, I mean, you can see you can see that in the Hebrew Bible as well. Like in the Book of Isaiah, where they try to maneuver between all these mm. large powers when Assyria started to expand westward. I mean, what we're going to do? Are we going to ally ourselves with them and call them in as a sort of well, na Well, well, <laughs> superpower. <laughs> Let's not. Mm. Uh, sort of superpower or other or or are we going to just keep to ourselves or are we going to ally with the rebels who want to Mm. attack the superpower and 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 it's a very very thin line to walk Uh, Mm. uh, and and this is these aren't modern problems these were problems for kings in in ancient israel they were problems for the kings of ugarit they were problems for the i mean people might who don't haven't read that much of the hebrew bible Mm. might be Surprise! how much of the prophetic writings are about politics hmm. there's a lot about the politics of the day like isaiah is full of this should we rebel against assyria should we ally ourselves with assyria or hmm. should we you know just try to breathe calmly and hope that these hmm. you know temporal struggles pass and, and and that we and that god protects jerusalem which was sort of isaiah's seems to have been isaiah's line that you know don't ally yourself with either either the rebels neither with the rebels nor with the Assyrians just trust that god will save jerusalem uh so that 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 sort of thing that doesn't seem very perhaps not very spiritual in in the modern sense of the word was very it's very much at the forefront of what say the book of isaiah is all about or parts of the book of isaiah
0: so we shouldn't take the good times for granted
1: <laughs> no no we most certainly should not and uh again the world wasn't created in 1945 it yeah really i guess the,
0: to add to that it's like it's like um you know right now is not special apart from the fact that we're here <laughs>
1: yeah exactly that exactly that and also uh, you know the inverse of that on the other hand is that if major societal upheavals occur that doesn't mean history stops i mean mm. that's another you know sort of fallacy that's quite easy to you know easy to fall into saying that oh If our civilization doesn't survive exactly as it is now, then, you know, the world is done for. Well, no, that doesn't, that, I mean, the Bronze Age civilizations of the ancient Near East did, many of them did collapse. uh, But on the other hand, then during the Iron Age, we got new ones. That's when the Israelites start making a name for themselves, for example, uh, because, uh, you know, then... Partly, I guess, because of the power vacuum. And that's where, you know, Assyria started to become, uh, you know, first Assyria, then Babylonia became world powers. Uh, and, and they didn't care that they'd been a major collapse around 1200. <laughs> you know, that didn't deter them.
0: People often talk about the Library of Alexandria.
1: Oh, right, yeah.
0: yeah. This It being destroyed, I guess, like Ugarit. How important is that? Because like, people make it'd seem as though if you know if if it never was destroyed we'd now be on mars and the technology would be. no
1: no no i'd say that's hugely overblown uh i I mean of course it would have been nice if it weren't but that goes for every ancient uh, ancient archive or 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 library that's nothing special for alexandria the alexandria thing is it's more like a you know it looks good on a t-shirt you know (laughs) I mean, would I would I have liked to see stuff from the Library of Alexandria? Obviously, obviously, does that mean that the Library of Alexandria was the one thing defining all of ancient learning? No, it absolutely does not mean that.
0: Mm. No, I I mean, so for for the sorry, go on.
1: I mean, we do have the Library of Nineveh, uh, Ashurbanipal's Library of Nineveh, and that's that's a good thing. I mean, it's comparable. Oh, yeah. I mean, win a few, lose a few. That's the way Mm. history works, unfortunately.
0: Did those uh, libraries sort of overlap as well in terms of what they No, no, no,
1: no, 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 they didn't. No, they wouldn't have. No, they wouldn't have. Uh, uh, For purely linguistic reasons. The the texts in Asurbanipal's library were in Akkadian, uh, which Mm. the scribes of Alexandria wouldn't have known. So, yeah.
0: So now that we've sort of sufficiently bathed ourselves in a conversation about Ugarit and ancient languages, and <laughs> so yeah. the question, the, the real question is, how did you get involved in nuclear semiotics? Oh. Did, did, <laughs> oh, it? Yeah. Was it your idea or where did, where, where did this come no, from? No,
1: no, no, no. Uh, uh, I came into nuclear semiotics the pretzel way, so to speak. No, what happened was I, I published a number of books Ooh. in Sweden
0: I should just say nuclear semiotics because uh, we haven't defined that yet. So if anyone's no, we confused, oh, no, we no, no, So maybe if you define that as well, just quickly with your yeah. answer. N-
1: n- nuclear semiotics is the is not really my field. It was one I was pulled into for 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 a bit, uh, uh, and it's the the field that discusses how we are to communicate into the future. The uh, about the storage of used nuclear fuel. That's basically what it is. You know, how are we to communicate into eternity, basically, or at least for thousands and thousands of years, uh, that yes, we have nuclear materi- f- uh, nuclear materials that are dangerous and keep away, basically, and uh, don't go here. Don't push this button as I put it in an article of mine. That's basically nuclear semiotics. How are we supposed in writing, in tradition with art whatever the case may be to commune communicate this into the far reaches of the future that's nuclear semiotics and how i got into it what happened was i have done a, quite a number of books popular books uh, i mean i've done scholarly books as well but this was mostly due to my popular books in sweden on ancient linguistics on the hebrew bible on ugarit on you know this sort of thing the, uh, these sorts of things and uh, that which has now and then led to quite a bit of media exposure, and after one such thing, actually, I'd, uh, it was after I'd received a prize, uh, and they, there was a, uh, you know, a, a newspaper article written in one of the major newspapers about yours truly and uh, discussing my work, and I got a phone call, uh, one of the most surprising phone calls I've ever received uh i may have been on a bus if memory serves let's say it was on a bus that serves the story it may have been on a bus uh, and it says hello this is uh, uh this uh this is uh, is this all the guy doing ancient languages well yes i can't say no you know uh well this is the swedish uh, uh nuclear waste management company calling and i was like uh what <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it was. And, and it was a a very nice guy from the Swedish nuclear waste management company, which is, as the name implies, the company that has the uh, task given by the Swedish state to sort of manage the uh, nuclear waste disposal thing in Sweden. And it's funded by the nuclear industry. They're obliged to fund this. Mm. Uh, it is a private company, but the funding is sort of directed towards them by the state it's a very sort of convoluted thing uh and they said well we read about you <laughs> oh you're nice you know that's nice uh and and, and uh, the thing was that they as turned out to be the case i didn't know this before but many of their equivalent agencies around the world because all, basically every nuclear nation has this sort of a Uh, an agency or a company doing this sort of thing and they've been working on this nuclear semiotic these nuclear semiotic questions for years now Uh, and uh, they some of them have used uh, the expertise of people like me to put that question in perspective and they wanted to do that They, they say we have a research budget that we would like to spend on this partly on this sort of question the question of uh linguistic transmissibility, the question of how languages change, the question of writing, the question of uh uh long-term preservation of texts uh, etc would you be willing would you be interested to in doing uh, a a minor research project for us on this and I and I just I, uh, this was at a point where I was just, about, I think this was actually before I got my doctorate when they first contacted me, if again my memory is a little fuzzy here but I think it was before I got my doctorate, so this was more than 10 years ago. Uh, so, uh, uh, And if there's one thing that's on the mind of someone who's just about to get the doctorate, it's how am I gonna get funding after my doctorate? <laughs> you know, that is the big question on the mind of every newly minted or about to be minted doctor of philosophy so i uh, i was like oh uh, yeah nice <laughs> uh well i and i had my you know i wanted wanted to know what is this because uh i wanted to know you know uh what my sort of scholarly freedom would be etc i didn't want to be ruled by the man as it were so uh, but they said no come up to stockholm and we'll and and we'll talk about it. And show, and I did. I, I, I travelled up to Stockholm, and they made a very very nice presentation about sort of what they wanted, and made it very clear that no, I was my own man. They would fund it, but I was my own man. They would have no, they wouldn't rewrite what I uh, rewrite my conclusions in any way, or even vet them. Actually, they they wanted me to be a free agent, but funded by them. And the task was not specifically to come up with solutions to how. uh, to talk to future generations it was like we want you to speculate on what this question might entail from your perspective and what and even more interestingly in a way what it might what light it might shed on your field and that's Mm -hmm. even cooler you know uh, and i tried to do that i wrote two scholarly articles which were published in 2015 Uh, they're both freely available online Mm -hmm. so you can read them
0: they're quite yeah. readable, by the way. I, I I went through them. They're they're quite uh, readable thanks, for anyone. Thanks, I'll I'll link thanks. them down in the description.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, and they are uh, one of them is focused on the question of religious preservation of texts. You know, how do religious elites preserve texts for long times? Uh, and can how you know texts like the Bible or the Quran or or, or the Vedic writings or Vedic writings or whatever uh because that there actually was a a suggestion made back already in the 80s i think it was in 84 by a semiotician called thomas shebek he spelled cbiok but it's pronounced Mm. shebek uh who uh had this idea that the solution would be to institute what he called a nuclear priesthood Mm. uh, who would which would be a sort of self-perpetuating oligarchy which would which would know the truth about this but they wouldn't tell <laughs> it you know they they would keep it semi-secret and just tell the bare bones you know to, to the hoi polloi as it were but they would uh, it, uh were supposed to sort of uh be tradents of this secret knowledge uh, about the nuclear waste sites and uh and that's one of the problems i discussed that yes you could probably institute such a Uh, such a nuclear priesthood, that would probably be possible. Uh, But the problem would be that what we know of this sort of intelligentsia group like Brahmins and rabbis and, you know, what have you, they're often extremely good at preserving texts. They can often preserve texts like verbatim over thousands of years with ingenious mnemotechnical error-correcting methods, you know, so that the text is very well preserved but then they completely reinterpret its meaning. Because the important thing is the letter of the text. And then you can write commentaries completely reinterpreting what the text means. Like, a good example of this that I use in one of the articles, Isaiah chapter 40 talks about making the road straight through the desert for our god you know that wasn't a literal quote but basically that which in context refers to the return of the israelite refugees from babylon you know Mm. the exilite the the exiled refugees that you know they're, they're, they're to walk literally through the desert of what is today jordan to get back to ancient israel you know it's very literal that was later on reinterpreted as a prophecy about John the Baptist a voice calls in the desert make you know make the road straight for our god and and interpreted as uh, in the in the new testament as a prophecy about John the Baptist who lived in the desert can and I, that's a I, very very radical reinterpretation this?
0: can i can yes? i ask you about this because i'm just curious uh, se- separate to the how cuz christians do often talk about prophecy in the old testament You know, prophecy about John the Baptist and and Jesus and this sort of thing. And uh, how how often does what modern day Christians hold up to scrutiny on the academic stage? Because you know uh, the reason. uh, Well, the reason I I asked this is because I was personally curious. I I read about a prophecy and I, I went and looked in the Old Testament just out of curiosity and. I didn't see, like I was not able, I know this is in English, <laughs> I wasn't able to read the prophecy that people were saying was there. And it, it wasn't obvious to me. I, I can't, it's years yeah, ago yeah. now, I can't remember. Yeah. So, so, yeah, sure. so how, how, how well do these prophecies
1: I hold mean, up? I mean, yeah. <sighs> <laughs> to, underst- to answer that question in a polite yet correct way, one has to think not of one has to think of textual use in ancient second Temple Judaism which is the culture out of which Christianity subsequently grew and that was a culture in which and you find this not only in Christian text you find it in Jewish text of the of that age as well and it was a hermeneutical principle in which basically any text could illustrate any other text mm-hmm you find that at Qumran, for example, uh, Qumran is the place where the famous Dead Sea Scrolls were found, Khirbet Qumran, uh, where there was a Jewish sect living, and they uh, were the ones who preserved, you know, the famous scrolls. But they also they had lot the, the scrolls that we normally speak of in terms of the Dead Sea Scrolls are the bit the ones that are texts that later ended up ended up in the Bible, but they had lots of other writings as well. They had lots and lots of texts, and many of those show us their how they did hermeneutics, how they thought of their inherited texts, and they did just that. Any good or any old text could be seen as a prophecy of any other text. They could take a text from a psalm and say that, oh, this tells us about the Romans, for example. Mm -hmm. That was just, it was the done thing. That was the way texts were read. Uh, So this isn't something specific to Christianity. Christianity took it in its own direction because they you know, it was specifically Jesus of Nazareth that uh, was one believed, one found in the older text. But, you know, they weren't the only ones to do this. Uh, it was a way of creative reinterpretation of earlier texts um, that was very much on vogue in the culture from which Christianity grew. So it wasn't a specifically Christian thing. Uh, and, I mean, let's say... Let's take a very famous example: the so-called mm. Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah, which talks about this ideal king uh, that is to be born, called Emmanuel, uh, which means "God with us." Emmanuel, and that's Emmanuel in in uh, in uh, in English. Uh, when this text was written, this would probably have been a sort of a royalist sentiment that we will get a very very good heir for the throne one good bet is that it that it uh, that it's uh, uh meant to imply the king hezekiah or who he- as he's called in hebrew hezekiah uh who was to be some sort of an idea very good davidic king in jerusalem mm-hmm. centuries later the emerging jesus movement which later became what we know as christianity said oh no it's jesus mm-hmm. is this a prop does that mean that this is a prophecy well that demand depends on the reader doesn't it mm-hmm. uh so I, mean, I, I and that goes for all of this stuff what the new testament writers want to do especially some of some of the gospel writers want to they want to anchor their message about Jesus of Nazareth in texts that their readership would be a, would be familiar with i.e. the texts we know as the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament they wanted you know this happened so that xxx could be fulfilled that just that means that we didn't pull this out of thin air it fits mm-hmm. together it, it's a way to build a coherent world view to say that you like these texts our new story fits with that
0: mm mm-hmm. mhm so, so it wasn't even necessarily that the prophecy itself was it, it, it's it's not just that the prophecy itself is maybe impressive but that you gain these links that otherwise don't exist textually
1: yeah yeah i mean if you ask a jewish reader today about the emmanuel prophecy they would never say that it's about jesus <laughs> they would never say that. <laughs> absolutely absolutely not that was a specific reading in the early jesus movement that yes this is text about Jesus and the same thing goes for one of the most famous ones is the the so-called uh, songs of the suffering servant also in the book the later parts of the book of isaiah especially isaiah th- chapters 52 and 53 which talk about a character an unnamed character called the servant of god a servant of the lord who is subjected to all these sufferings uh, he suffered for our sakes etc etc uh which uh, in the traditional Jewish reading, and quite probably in a historically correct reading, is a reference either to the Jewish people or a subset of the Jewish people. It's, but this text was taken up by the early Jesus movement, saying, "No, no, it's Jesus. He's the one who's suffering for all of us. It's Jesus." <laughs> but then, but that's it's it, it's a creative reinterpretation of text, and the same goes for the John the Baptist passage. You know that we have a te- passage which was about going go west literally you know going west mm. through the desert from babylon to ancient israel uh, uh, uh through the de- a voice shouts make the uh, makes the make the path straight for our god through the desert and then that was reread as there's a voice shouting in the desert make the <laughs> and that mm. voice is john the baptist but that's mm. a very very um, so I, I i i mean prophecy is a When we as scholars of the Hebrew Bible talk about prophecy, we just mean a certain category of texts that are prophetic in form, and that's texts like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. We don't mean prophecy in the sense of predicting the future. That's not what prophecy means in the scholarly sense, it just means a category of text. Uh, So, I mean, is Isaiah verse chapter 7, for example, a prophecy? Well, of course, it's a prophecy in the sense that it's in a prophetical book, and it has us. Is it a prophecy of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, that's a theological statement that's totally outside the purview of of of, of what we do. I mean, saying <laughs> that that is a prophecy about Jesus Jesus known as the Christ uh, is a Christian theolo- theological statement. It's not a scholarly mm-hmm. statement.
0: I realise I've I've completely knocked you off uh, where you were talk- so you're no talking. So, no problem. No problem. <laughs> so we were talking about uh, this atomic priesthood, and yeah. you know, there's two things I want to say about this. Which is, um, first yeah, of yeah. all,
1: exactly the term you used is atomic priesthood, not nuclear priesthood. Quite correct. <laughs> See, quite I've read,
0: I've, re- I've read your, <laughs> but um, so th- there's two points I wanted to um, sort of. Just one is sort of just a statement, which is that you know as soon as you're invoking an atomic priesthood to con- to look after your waste management, then uh, it becomes much more expensive to run a nuclear power station if you have to do that for the next ten thousand years. But that, so that's just oh, sort yeah. of to the to the side. But um, ju- just because people might be lost with the idea of why this was put forward as an idea, you know, there's there's sort of three problems you have to. Deal with one is that you need the message to survive, <laughs> yeah. Then the second is you need it to be translatable or understandable, and yeah. then you need people to actually follow the orders, yeah. Right? Because, because, and that that last one oh, is yeah. perhaps the most difficult one, oh, yeah. um, because you know, why should it, I, I guess I can put it to you like, why should our descendants listen to us, you know, where in question. their mind we're just, um, some fossil fuel farm, you know some backwater
1: (laughs) indeed indeed and that's actually that's one of the main points i want to make especially in in one of these articles i i I refer to is that we may we we have to imagine a number of different scenarios one of them is complete continuity if we have complete continuity then there isn't that much of a problem then it's just a matter of preservation and error correction In the sense that we have to error correct for reinterpretation which is a huge problem in and of itself so uh, and then we have the linguistic problem which is also huge but but if there isn't complete continuity we have two we have at least two possibilities perhaps more we have the possibility of a very prim quote unquote primitive society in the future who just doesn't understand what nuclear power is how do we Mm -hmm. speak to such a society and then we have the other problems a, a hyper advanced society which will say that no no these guys didn't understand nuclear power they it was just superstition to them they, they it was like you know uh so we just we don't have to care about their warnings because they didn't understand what was good for them these unevolved pathetic human beings of the early 21st century blah, blah. You know, <laughs> and we had to uh and that's a distinct it's a definite problem and, 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 and i use one example very clearly others have used similar you know that from the ancient world there aren't enormous amount of you know funerary inscriptions saying basically this do not open this sarcophagus there's no there are no treasures in it and if you do open it and desecrate desecrate it all the gods will destroy you and your inheritance and your descendants and you will be blotted out from the earth and Baal and all his friends will crush you so insert whatever god suits the the context uh And I I actually start one of the articles by quoting uh, at length one such uh, text, uh, a Phoenician uh, inscription uh, on the sarcophagus of a Phoenician king called Ishmun Azor II, uh, which threatens the reader with all these sorts of curses if the reader were to be so obnoxious as to disturb the resting place of the king. Which doesn't help the fact that his resting place was moved to the Louvre, and uh, by archaeologists who didn't care one jot about the Phoenician gods, because they didn't believe—or well, there's the word "believe" again—but they didn't count with the Phoenician gods as dangers. And we can very could very well imagine a future in which they knew about nuclear power, but counted it as superstition or as something irrelevant or as something that only weak ancient peoples were susceptible to or whatever because it would be to them like the phoenician gods are to some modern people today i wonder that yeah that's a problem
0: i I wonder (laughs) it makes me um kind of wonder if we're sort of dooming ourselves because you know if we want people to listen to us in the future you know when we're long dead we we no longer have any sort of say how things run and the fact that we very happily remove those pharaohs or whoever it is from their tombs and put them in yeah. museums and so on, we're yeah. not sort of setting a very good precedent. So I guess the question is, you know, how should we balance the wishes of long dead kings with the fact that you could learn a lot of you know, interesting things from pulling yeah. apart their gravesites?
1: I mean, oh, dear. <laughs> that all depends on what i mean that depends on so many moral questions about you know the integrity of the dead and you know it's a, it, it, it it's a huge can of worms right there which has in itself nothing to do with nuclear you n- the nuclear problem because it has to do with you know respect for 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 dead people and, and and for that matter whether there will come whether big phoenician gods will come and strike you with a with a bolt of lightning that's another problem if you believe that but uh, but i mean the one thing that i will say and i do say in the other article in fact is that this whole problem in a very very dramatic way shows the necessity of preserving the discipline of philology and historical linguistics and textual study, uh, because without these disciplines, future people's, peoples will be completely unable to understand what the frack we're saying, uh, and that that's for many reasons. A, they won't have the archeolo- perhaps not have the archaeological acumen to dig it out. So we need archaeology as well. Uh, but uh, but also language will change. I have an example in one of the articles on how much, you know, have uh, done athes That's old English. And that's like a little more than a millennium old, but it's still basically not understandable to a modern English speaker. You have to learn hmm. it as a foreign language. You know, Here on this year was Ethel something rather, Je unto bishop stole. Most English speakers today wouldn't understand that, and it's the same—it's the same language, just about a, a little more than a millennium later. So, languages do change dramatically over time. Even languages spelt as conservatively as English, because English has a very, very conservative spelling, as we discussed earlier. But even then, the difference becomes vast over, say, a millennium or so. Uh, so we need to preserve historical linguistics, because historical linguistics is what gives us the opportunity and the ability mm-hmm. to reconstruct what earlier language looked like. That's the only thing that gives us. The, uh, and the other possible thing, of course, is just preserving language through tradition. And some this, it's worked for Latin and it's worked for Hebrew. It didn't work for Ugaritic, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't work for Akkadian. It, uh, so, so sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, we have to preserve what i would refer to as philological exegesis that is the philological study of ancient texts and st- the study of how they are again we re- can be reinterpreted because we have to error correct for these possible mm. reinterpretations people might think that nuclear power is god for example uh, people might think that oh yeah cool they have nuclear fuel we should dig that stuff up and use it mm. yeah,
0: well, one thing i'm curious about stuff. is you know, I had this interesting situation about five years ago. I, I, I spent some time growing up in Newcastle, Australia, and maybe five or so years ago, I returned to Newcastle just after there was a huge storm. And what had happened during the storm is some train tracks that used to exist were exposed. The sand sort of washed off them.
1: Oh, okay. And right. no
0: one, as far as I know, no one knew what the... Like, no one had any memory that the, these train tracks existed. And Australia is like 200 years old.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So uh,
0: my, my question is, like, very simply, how do things get... For, like, why in, you know, a couple of generations can we completely forget that a, a train line exists? You know, it, it, it yeah, seems... Right it seems uh you know what's the mechanism there that makes us so forgetful
1: well oh dear dear me i'd say personally i mean the mechanism there is just lack. this must seem like something of a something of a not an oxymoron what's the word uh well uh it, me just like 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 me repeating what you're saying you know uh, but the, the mechanism is forgetfulness <laughs> because you know as no but 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 seriously if something isn't doesn't have tradence if something doesn't have someone handing it over to the next generation and it isn't sort of present either in archival form or in front of your eyes it's gone it's mm-hmm. gone unless you physically dig it up i mean like Ugarit. Before Ugarit was discovered, a couple of decades before, they actually did know that Ugarit had existed because it is mentioned in, I believe, in Hittite letters. Uh, And the Hittite kingdom had just been discovered, which had also been... I mean, the Hittite empire was absolutely forgotten. It was one of the major empires of the ancient world and it was like gone. Oh, uh, nobody knew there had been a big Hittite empire. They knew the word Hittite but that was it. And then the Hittite empire was rediscovered <laughs> and its language mm. deciphered. It turned out to be an Indo-European language uh, like, that is mm. very distantly related to English. Uh, and, uh, I, I, and I do believe it's either it's in May, I think it's in some Hittite, lang, Hittite letter or possibly in an Elamana letter. That is a letter from uh, what is to, uh, preserved in what is today egypt but anyway uh, that did mention that Ugarit was a very affluent place but nobody knew where it was until they physically physically dig dug the whole thing up at ras shamra in, in syria and i mean that could happen to lund where i the city where i live it could happen to london it could happen to uh, to newcastle it could happen to anything as soon, as soon as people aren't carry you know passing memory on it's gone and it just takes one generation for it to be unless hmm. it's written down in big block letters somewhere or physically preserved it's gone that's just the way things are
0: so i guess you're i guess <laughs> i mean you you're really putting it in perspective an entire civilization disappeared into nothingness and yet we're expecting to be able to tell people that there's this yeah. one nuclear dump here, 10,000. Yeah. And also, we're, we're looking at much smaller timescales here uh, when, when we're talking yeah. about you. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, yeah. You, know, if, you know, if you want to look 10,000 years in the future, um, then it starts becoming much more problematic, in fact, doesn't it? Oh um, yeah. What, re- what resolution do you suspect people will understand our current culture 10,000 years from now. Like I'm I'm guessing I'm guessing Elvis is gone. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean I mean how would I know? I mean this is we don't even know what language will be spoken in major language. what will be the major language of uh, of the world major language is in 50 years we can guess we can we can venture a good guess we can say that english will probably be a thing chinese will probably be a thing russian will probably be a major thing but do we know for certain no Mm -hmm. we don't and we're talking tens of thousands of years ouch i mean (laughs) i mean it's it's so hard i mean what you know the story of the hittite empire which was rediscovered and very extensively so is they did one thing right they wrote on non-perishable material they wrote on clay they probably didn't exclusively write on clay they may have written on uh, on wooden boards as well and those of course are not preserved which is a hassle but the clay stuff is preserved which means that we have lots of hittite uh texts lots and lots of it uh, and in texts in other languages, which were in use in the Hittite Empire, because it was a massively multilingual, mm. uh, multilingual society, uh, and they did, and they were smart. So they wrote on they they wrote on peri- non-perishable material, as did the Ugaritians. They wrote on clay, and clay it works well. Um, paper is bad because it is destroyed very easily. Papyrus is destroyed very easily. I mean, th- there's no, it's it's no coincidence that the places where we have huge preservation of papyri from from the ancient world from uh, Greco-Roman the Greco-Roman world is A Egypt because the sands uh, of the Nile uh, uh the Nile sands uh, and the, the extreme aridity preserves uh, mm-hmm. preserves papyrus in which which uh, most climates don't and uh, also from places like uh, herculaneum which was one of the cities that were uh, that were buried by uh, the eruption of mount vesuvius mm-hmm. which preserved it but we have very uh, that uh, those are places where you get lots of papyri because it's such a perishable material uh, and paper is very perishable um, digital stuff even more so even more so mm-hmm. I mean, they used to say that CDs had a, had an expected lifetime of five years. It turned out to be better than that because most of those can be read without any problem, and even old, even old uh, floppies from the 80s can mm-hmm. mostly be read if you. But the, I mean, one problem. Uh, I grew up with a Mac Plus. I grew up with a Mac Plus, which said Bing when you started. Uh, it's a wonderful piece of tech from the early 80s, or oh, mid 80s, mid 80s uh the problem there is that those discs the the floppies for uh, the non-floppy floppies there are most of them are preserved but you can't find a floppy drive for them that can read them so Mm. they're basically unreadable today if you don't have legacy hardware (laughs) and that's just within a couple of decades come on so if
0: you if you had to I, i know that when you wrote the articles you were sort of uh fleshing out ideas of what could go wrong or what some of yeah Yeah. and and so you didn't really as far as i remember you didn't really put forward uh full solutions but you know if if someone put the gun to your head and and you you had to um i I, so i could put forward a suggestion my suggestion from what i'm just hearing from you is that maybe you want to think about the location uh you want to put it you know if if you're going to be writing things in Uh, on papyrus maybe you want the region to be dry (laughs) but yeah yeah, yeah, so if you had some if you had to put forward some suggestions uh is the atomic priesthood realistic is is there something better than that you know could we is there a better way of embedding in the culture Uh, what would you if you had to
1: yeah i mean i have had to on certain occasions because I, I, perhaps nobody's put a gun to my head, but they have put microphones to my head or to my mouth, rather. So I've had to answer this question as well as I can on certain occasions and I'll, and I'll try here as well. Well, I think the main word should be redundancy. Mm-hmm. Redundancy, moreness. <laughs> we need moreness. and we need moreness in on every variable that is we need many different languages we need many different styles and subsets of languages like like i like the etruscan example you know then it may be the case that people in the future know english but only parts of the english vocabulary we need redundancy in terms of style and vocabulary and format we need both uh warning signs and uh, 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 saying just keep away dangerous and Uh, scholarly or scientific treatises. We need both of these sorts of things uh, and anything in between. We need many languages, many different styles, many materials. We need clay. We need wood. We need, well, perhaps not wood. uh, (laughs) We need cement. We need paper. We need we maybe we even do need the atomic priesthood, not in the sense. I don't think in the sense that Shebok argued. I, I don't like. I, I'm not a great fan of this secretive stuff. You know, this, all you know, not telling people what this really was and hiding it, mm. like a sort of Illuminati thing. I'm not into that. But but perhaps a, a a group of people who learn stuff by heart. That's not that's not that's not the worst of our ideas. It not it isn't but the worst of ideas is doing that and just letting them go off and not doing any error correcting because then they'll reinterpret this as having as being an epic story about gods battling it out for copper or whatever so <laughs> so so my main my main recipe if i were to have a gun put to my a nuclear gun weird expression mm. put to my head would be redundancy many modes of preservation many languages many styles uh, many uh, vocabularies many mat- sets p- kinds of material as much as possible uh, it makes sorry spread the risk spread the risk many places above ground below ground on mountaintops what have you just make sure that the i mean things will go wrong things will go wrong so we need as much error correction as humanly possible
0: It makes me, it it makes two questions sort of spring to mind. Um, The first, I'll ask them in, in, because they're sort of unrelated. But uh, the first one is Do you think we're driving towards a world where there are going to be less languages in in the sense that, you know, if you went to France maybe a couple hundred years ago, maybe you would have seen what. the the region that's modern-day France. Maybe you would have seen lots of little regions with uh, Asetian and all all these different... uh, Do you think we're driving to a world where, due to our interconnectedness, you won't have the possibility of having that redundancy in terms of languages? Um,
1: Well, Well, I mean, we are currently, as of right now, we are seeing a great reduction in the amount of languages, which is a very... Sad thing, and languages are dying out. Uh, How quickly they do is a debated question. I mean, there are you know all these sort of figures that X amount of languages die out in X time, and yeah, but but languages certainly are dying out, uh, and but they've been dying out for a long time. That's not a new thing. Ugaritic died out, Hittite died out, Sumerian died out. I mean, yeah. But lots of languages are dying out right uh, right now due to, as you say, I mean, due, often it's due. Sometimes it's due to very very brutal reasons. War is one major reason. War and economics. War and economics. Uh, if you get, for example, a situation where you've been ruled by a by a, a power which is disinclined to use the language you've been brought up with, and you can only use that language at home. You can't use it in commerce. You can't use it when addressing the authorities. That language is set for... Or at least it's it, it, it runs the risk of extinction. Mm. It, not necessarily. I mean, sometimes these, these problems, get, these tendencies can be counteracted. I mean, there are good examples of language revitalization where, where you consciously fight to keep a language alive.
0: Irish, yes, I suppose...
1: La- uh, Irish is one example. Uh, and Hebrew
0: itself, right? I guess Hebrew could Yeah, have... well,
1: Hebrew is a very specific example because it was revived in a modern uh, form which is, uh, in many ways, rather different from its earlier periods. So that's a...
0: But that's it a involved ver- th- priesthood in some sense, no?
1: <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. It did. It did. I mean, I mean, Hebrew had never died out in the sense that nobody used it. It never died out in that sense. It did out- die out in the sense that it was never anybody's first language. But it was used in liturgy, it was used for writing, etc. It's very different than, say, Sumerian, which died out completely in the sense that for... for, I mean, it it, it was preserved as a scholarly language for almost 2,000 years, which is pretty cool. I mean, it's like Latin. It's like mm. Latin. Uh, in Sumerian, we don't know exactly when it died out as a, as a native language, probably around the 2000 BCE mark, perhaps a little mm. later than that but then it was kept alive as a scholarly language for almost two millennia after that which is pretty amazing if you think about it it's it's like latin's been used uh in in in, in the western world and, and like hebrew was used in judaism so, i mean spoken hebrew died out around again we don't know exactly but around 200 ce give mm-hmm. or take and then it was a strictly a uh you know it was, it was a learned language. Nobody spoke it as their first language. That doesn't mean it wasn't used. It was used for certain purposes. It was used in poetry. It was used in literature. It was used in liturgy. It was sometimes rarely, but sometimes even spoken. Mm. But then uh, uh, when uh, modern Zionism was born, it was chosen as the main language in the Jewish settlement uh, in what was then... Mm uh you know in in palestine and what later became the state of israel uh and uh, but that's a very very specific development that basically hasn't happened anywhere else but uh, but language revitalization has happened in many places and irish is one example you know the geltacht which Mm. keeps it alive and and it's become almost you know it's part of ireland a bit hip to know irish you know it's it's cool you know uh for some people which is a great thing i love that i love that Uh, and uh, but sure, languages are dying, but that doesn't mean redundancy. To get back to the main question, sorry for all these tangents I'm going off on. It's Perfect. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But but the uh, but the um, the question of creating linguistic redundancy in 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 nuclear uh, semiotics—that is, writing in many different languages—well, that won't be a problem, because I mean. We still have 6,000 or five, <laughs> between five and 6,000 languages spoken, depending on how you count language and dialect and all that. Uh, we will not be having one single language anytime soon, let's put it like that. I don't think that will ever happen, and I'm very, very happen- happy it won't. Linguistic diversity is a treasure. Hmm. It's a feature. It isn't a bug.
0: <laughs> it, okay, but uh, so I have to point out a possible problem with the redundancy idea though <laughs> because you know we translated uh I, I won't i won't know the name of the scripts but the ancient Egr- egyptian scripts using the rosetta stone right and yeah be, what, well, well
1: starting with that but then it was a long process after but yeah starting there yes
0: what, what was the name of the script
1: well well the main the, the script everybody knows knows about from from Egypt is is hieroglyphic. Okay. Yeah, uh, but I just there were also the... Al- also the demotic and hieratic scripts were were quite as common as uh, and possibly more common actually in practice. They had so, three so, three scripts.
0: So the so I I imagine a situation in the future where we've long forgotten all of our modern languages all the six thousand languages that we currently have let's say but we know one location where we can get a Rosetta stone and that is we go to the nuclear waste facilities yeah. <laughs> yeah. where we have this you know this Rosetta stone of redundancy built into the system yeah. and so the problem might be that actually your defense mechanism becomes a thing that attracts people to come into the uh to the facility yeah. in the first place
1: uh, yeah well but that the answer there is of course that the rosetta stone shouldn't only be in the facility it should be somewhere mm-hmm. else or if it or if it would be were to be in the facility it would be at the absolute entrance not down among the canisters hopefully <laughs> because there it wouldn't do a fat lot of good would it <laughs> uh no I, I mean the redundancy has to be uh spatial as well mm-hmm. you, you have to uh you would have to have these texts and descriptions and, and not only text. I mean I mean I've been focused on text, obviously, because that I'm a text guy, it's what I do. But I know that there have been you know lots of other scholars from other fields working in nuclear semiotics who have been, you know, they've been discussing symbols and spikes and, and blue forests and genetically engineered blue forests and all these mm. of, all this kind of stuff. Uh which is pretty cool i i don't know enough about it to make a solid judgment but it it sounds cool enough uh, but uh but anyway i mean it's the redundancy has to be like i said on all the variables it has to be redundancy of space it has to be redundancy of language it has to be redundancy of material it has to be redundancy of vocabulary of style etc 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 so i i don't think having too much information will be a big problem no uh, the problems i see are rather stuff like you know will people even care Mm. you know even if they can read it will they even care
0: Mm. and
1: that's hard to that's not hard to that's not easy to make to control is it no it's really really hard
0: so i want to finish the conversation on a question which directs more towards your personality again (laughs) oh yeah um so, uh, just uh, just had a curiosity. You know, you you study history over large periods of time, and as I mentioned uh, at the very beginning beginning of the conversation, is there any perspective you gain for the value of the time we have on Earth now? Like, you know, is there, you know, do, do you live your life differently, but knowing that? 10,000 years and uh, from now, you know, whole civilizations would disappear, let alone your own works. <laughs> um uh, is, is there is there any perspective you can share on on what 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 does your study over thousands of years teach us about uh, our lives today and
1: your yeah, own life? Yeah, yeah, lots of things, lots of things and and does it affect me? Yes, constantly. I mean, I, I just to say uh just to add uh one thing that you know i got into this basically for me it was very much a family matter i grew up in a classic classicist household both my parents is slash was my mother is deceased uh classicist and classical archaeologist. and that meant that the study of the ancient world was sort of ingrained in the whole sort of family project <laughs> as it were but i i i went on in my own direction you know uh, but that meant that I grew up with this sort of question surrounding me constantly and and, and my work in ancient texts have sort of un- underpinned that even more, helped underpin that. And yeah, I mean, it's many different things that you learn to put your life in perspective. One of them, of mm-hmm. course, is the, you know, the we're just a grain of sand et cetera, et cetera, and etc. etc. on the huge beach of time, if that makes any bad analogy, but you get my point. And that can be a bit scary, obviously. I mean, the ancient Proto-Indo-Europeans, the linguistic ancestors of English and Swedish and most of the languages in Europe and northern India, we we. I mean, historical linguists linguists have reconstructed quite well what their language would have sounded like, give or take six thousand years ago when 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 they started moving across what is today Europe uh, or towards at least and 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 using sound laws etc that's been a very successful endeavor and one of the terms that they apparently used was we know this term because it appears both in Greek its descendants it's, it's one of these inherited mm-hmm. motifs it occurs verbatim both in Greek in that case and in uh, in uh, Vedic Sanskrit uh, in Greek it's kleos aftiton And in in, in Sanskrit, it is uh, shravas akshitam, or akshitam shravas, actually, which means imperishable fame. It's the exact same phrase, imperishable fame. Uh, In Proto-European, it would have been ndgvitom klevos, (laughs) uh, which was apparently a term for the eternal fame of heroes you know that they will sing lays about you forever that you cannot perhaps you can't be immortal but you will have you will have eternal imperishable fame the problem is that studying texts and ancient cultures in the way that this type of scholarship does is that it, what you learn is that maybe you won't. <laughs> it's it's a weird <laughs> double effect. That on, on on one hand you can reconstruct the term the proto europeans had for imperishable fame. On the other hand, you know that the the fame will probably never be imperishable. But on the mm. other hand, it held on for six thousand years. That's not too bad, is it? I mean, six that or five thousand five hundred. Whatever. It's it's not too bad. Like. In, or, or even 6000 6, years ago they were there were indo-european bards proto-indo-european bards probably in southern russia ukraine kazakhstan somewhere dreaming about was de their imperishable fame. And here we are today, 6,000 years later, reconstructing the very words they used to say it. Isn't that pretty cool? And re- trying to reconstruct their myths as well. and we And we're doing the same for ancient Semitic. And I mean, that is pretty cool. So on one hand, you get this fear that, oh yeah... The solar, the sun will go out, and the solar system will be destroyed, and the big, and you know, the heat death of the universe, and blah. You know, you can get pretty despondent about the whole thing. On the other hand, well, six thousand years isn't that bad, is it? Six thousand years isn't that bad, is it? I mean, so so it's both. It's both the feeling of this enormous feeling of continuity and of survival, and of dread at the same time. And both are true. Both are true. You know, both are true, and it. And you get this. And another thing it gives us is, or at least me, is again, we weren't born in a vacuum. We weren't born in 1991 or 1981, as in my case, or 1945, or whatever, whatever cut off date we want to see as super, extremely important for our civilization. Uh, be- everything is built on what came before, the thoughts of the people who came before even if they did believe in leviathans some people do believe in leviathans to this day and it influences them to this day some people do worship odin to this day well perhaps there it wasn't an unbroken continuity but some people have started worshiping odin again are the gods dead question mark maybe they aren't you know uh, and all this i mean it it shows that we're not just living in this tiny pointless vacuum we're living in a in a long, long, long historical narrative almost, that we can actually start to see the outlines of. It it doesn't have a goal. I don't I personally don't believe that it has a goal. Some would I mean that's one of the major ideas of Christianity, for example, and so uh, that, that history does have a goal, you know, that sometime at one point Jesus will come back and the world's going to end, you know. uh, That's not my perspective, but, you know, even if the world doesn't have a goal, it has a history. It has a history of which we are part and we, every word we utter, every thought we think has been engendered in this Hmm. massive linguistic, cultural, what have you, and that's pretty cool to see it. I mean, we can never reconstruct all of it, but we can see bits and pieces, you know. And that's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> Ola, it's been a pleasure.
1: It's been a pleasure, likewise.
0: Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.